0: Welcome, everyone. Dr. Anthony the IV here, also known as Dr. Finance. You're on the Dr. Finance Live podcast. We got an incredible guest today, folks, Stephen M. R. Covey. Stephen is a best a national bestseller, international bestseller. He's doing so many amazing things. He's got this incredible book, actually, called Trust and Inspire. And if you see the bookshelf space he has in Barnes and & Nobles and everywhere, it's, it's just amazing. Look at that. New, how truly great leaders unleash greatness to others. He's the best-selling author of Speed of Trust, and it's got a great, uh, great, for oh, I'm sorry, with David Casper and, uh, and McKinley Covey as well. Um, th- uh, so definitely check that book out, folks. We're going to talk more about it today. We're going to talk about the details and the contents of that. But also, Stephen is doing some other amazing things. So folks, if you, if you can, let's give a warm welcome for Stephen and Mark Covey. Welcome, Stephen. How are you, sir?
1: Hi, I'm doing terrific, and I'm so excited to be here on your podcast today. Thank great you, to Steve. be with
0: you. Oh, Great to be with you too. And Steven, I I just wanted to add, so Steven is a New York Times uh, bestselling author and a number one Wall Street bestselling author. And the Speed of Trust, and I apologize for not saying this, has been translated into 22 languages and has sold over 2 million copies worldwide. Steven, can you, maybe 30 seconds or so, we'll do a little snapshot of yourself, just like a quick, you know, bio, and then we'll get into your story. And then we have about. so there's about 20 questions that I have that I think you would enjoy. And then we'll, we'll wrap up. So that's the game plan for today, if, if that works for you, Steve. Sa- sounds great. Excited okay. for it. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. All right. So, Stephen, maybe a 30-second quick snapshot of yourself. Anything you want to add to
1: the intro? Great. So I kind of have had two careers. Um, the first is uh, in working with my father, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And helping him build the business there, the Covey Leadership Center, I was the president and CEO that kind of built the business that we went all around the world to leverage his ideas, his intellectual property, seven habits worldwide. And so on that side of my career, I was the business builder, built the business, ran the business, grew it, scaled it, tried to really create value so we could impact people all over the world. And that was exciting. And, um, and I did that for about 15 years. And then I shifted gears to where I finally felt like now I had something to say. And, and um, you know, prior to that, I was just kind of helping my father get his voice out. But now I felt I found my voice and it was around trust. So I wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, and, um, and which is, you know, sold uh, uh, 2 million plus copies and, and uh, 22 languages and, and the like. And now I've got this new book out, Trust and Inspire. And so I speak about this, I, and uh, I work with executive teams of organizations all around the world, some 56 countries in the last uh, several years presenting on trust and leadership all around the world. So uh, that's kind of the two halves of my life as a business person, and then really kind of as a thought leader. And I love both of them. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And I will say this, that I was you know, fortunate to have such a great father, Stephen R. Covey, and an equally great mother who's just not as well-known, Sandra Covey. So great parents um, have been blessed, fortunate, lucky, whatever you might call it, to have that, that kind of upbringing. And I feel a sense of stewardship and responsibility to to try to pay it forward.
0: Stephen, that's brilliant. Stephen, real quick, I just want to hold up your book. Um, I know we're going to talk about your book in a little bit, but I just want to hold it up for, for everyone just so they can see. And I'm trying to get the angle, right? So uh, as you can see, folks, trust and inspire and this is incredible. And Stephen, if you don't mind, I, I want to just share what you wrote in the inside. Absolutely. I'd be happy to, with <laughs> you. I think this is really cool that you did this. So thank thank you. I appreciate it. i Dr. Tony Curry. I admire you and your work tremendously. Keep unleashing greatness in people everywhere by reading this upside down, actually, by continuing to be an exceptional trust inspired person and leader with ad, admiration and gratitude, Steven Covey. This is just incredible. I appreciate that. You know, folks, The the value of when someone actually handwrites you something, it's just, it it goes so far. Uh, It it really is uh, heartwarming. So, Stephen, I appreciate the copy as well. Um, I'm going to buy a lot of copies for and and share it for sure and promote it a lot. Uh, Because I really, your your dad's books, like, you know, I was a professor at a university. All I heard about was seven habits of highly effective people. I actually quoted your dad in, in, um, I believe, one or two of my books, at least the second Uh one. It's my second one. I quoted him in there. Um, so, you know, he's, he's just a, a great leader. And, and the fact that you're, you've taken on your voice of your own, as you said, in the trust category, I know this book is going to be good. I can't wait to read it. It's going to be a, it's a great book. Uh, I already know, I already skimmed through it, but, um, I'm going to read it word for word very soon. So thank you, Stephen.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. I'm excited. I think that, uh, you'll, you'll like it because I'm trying to just make the case of how the world has changed. And our style of leadership needs to catch up with this changing world. We can't mo- operate the, with the old model. It just doesn't work anymore.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant and perfectly timed paradigm to enter into our, our conversation. So, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Let, let's first start with, first of all, Stephen M.R. Covey, but you're the fourth. I'm the fourth. I'm <laughs> crazy. Is that? We were talking <laughs> about that the other, in the email. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, have, I, I have different. We all have different middle names.
0: Uh-huh on
1: my end. So yeah, we don't here. carry the moniker forth. And, and, uh, you know, my father, is Stephen R. Covey, I'm Stephen M. R. Covey for Merrill Richards. And, you know, and my grandfather was Stephen Glenn Covey and my great grandfather was Stephen Matt Covey. And here's the, th- here's the thing, Dr. Finance, I've carried it forward. I named my son, Stephen Hutchins Covey. And he named his son the fifth? Oh. the fifth and he named his son. <laughs> Stephen Vest Covey. So there's six. Wow. Stephen Coveys, and I, and I've got a great picture when my dad was still living of of my dad with me with my son with my grandson, four generations of Stephen Coveys in a in a picture. So it, it's exciting, and I feel you know again it's a sense of uh, both uh, legacy but also stewardship to to kind of live up to what my my father did and has done with his with his work.
0: That's beautiful, Steven. And, and I, I subscribe to the belief to, uh, you know, don't worry about the middle initial thing. Like I, so yeah. no, that didn't happen in my family either. Matter of fact, my thank great you. grandfather was Antonio, but it's Anthony in English. So.
1: Absolutely. It is. <laughs> <Recounted>. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: but thank you, Steven. Appreciate that. And uh, yeah, lucky number four. All right. So lucky number four. <laughs> want to start out with your story a little bit. So let's take us back to childhood. Where were you originally from? And, uh, you know, what was it like the first 10 years, like growing up?
1: Yeah. Well, um, originally from, uh, Utah and born there, but, but in the first 10 years I lived, I lived in, uh, in Belfast, Ireland for about three of those years. I lived in Hawaii about a year and a half. So, you know, I lived, uh, Half my time in other places, different parts of the world, and and in Hawaii. But had a a great childhood, and and uh, in fact, it's in my childhood in those first ten years that I tell the the story that my father told in Seven Habits of Green and Clean, of of trying to teach his son how to take care of the lawn, the yard, and that was me. <laughs> I'm the Green and Clean kid at, at age seven, <laughs> and so it's all part of my childhood. But but. Uh, you know, so I I I I've lived a variety of different places around the world and in, in in the country, and uh, now uh, I love the mountains, and that's why I love. Uh, I'm really close to the Sundance Ski Resort, where I'm at now.
0: So you you're in Utah right now? Yes. Oh, okay. And I got to say, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but I've been pretty much every state in the country. Did a road trip about 15 years ago, hitting a lot of states, and. Utah is. I just took my breath away. I, I couldn't believe that I never saw that place before. When I got there, it was like, why? How did I miss this? This yeah. is just like it's one of the most precious states in in the whole United States. It's just got so much to it.
1: it there's so much. It's beautiful. The mountains and the mountains are right there, right next to the city, and and uh, and and, you know, I love to ski, and you're literally, um, I mean, for me, I'm just ten minutes from Sundance. And, and, and that's amazing. And, you know, that's Robert Redford's resort and really a spectacular place and and very close to Park City and the resorts there and, and Snowbird and Alta. So if you like to ski, if you like the mountains, it's a fantastic place. And then in the south, you have those big national parks, you know, Zions and Bryce and Canyonlands. And it's kind of like the Grand Canyon, that that type of beautiful red rock. So it's one of the most visually spectacular places you'll see with the mountains with the red rocks you know the the contrast just
0: if you love the outdoors it's a beautiful place or you, you're from the and correct me on my geography but you're from the northern part of yeah South? yeah i'm not uh, yeah i am i'm up in the mountains not in the red rock oh okay and, and is that basically where your family was from originally too yeah 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 okay.
1: is is where the family was from originally and where where i was born and I, I, again, I've lived all over the country and yeah. I lived in different parts of the world you know I mentioned when I was young in Ireland I've lived in Central America and south america um wow. but i'm I'm back to uh where I love to be in the mountains where I'm close to skiing.
0: do you know Dan Clark Dan Clark was a guest here.
1: I know who Dan is, but I don't know Dan personally oh okay I but love yeah. to
0: introduce you to him i, I think he uh he <laughs> you guys would hit it off great he's from Utah. He's a Hall of Fame speaker. And the guy I is just uh yeah. So yeah,
1: no, he's amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate you. So um basically you did a lot of traveling, and and that just reminded me, yeah, you're the son of Stephen Covey. So folks, Stephen Covey was one of the world leaders in in business thought. I, I every place that I, I taught at, I taught at uh six plus universities. Mm you know, every university I like students from all over what doesn't matter to class. His book came up in the conversation somewhere. So you know, Stephen grew up with a dad like that. So what was it like growing up with with uh, Stephen Covey?
1: You know, um, I'll just say this it was amazing. and now also, it was the only thing I ever knew, so i I didn't almost know the difference or appreciate it until a little bit later and then i realized how blessed i was how fortunate lucky to have uh, such a father and again i always I always like when i talk about my dad i like to put my mom in that same conversation mm. because she was equally as powerful and amazing tremendous as a mother just not quite as much in the limelight that like my father was but it, but i couldn't have been uh, more fortunate and and here's the interesting thing you'll appreciate and our our viewers and listeners will um that my dad would kind of test his ideas out on us first as kids. <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> we were the guinea pigs. So, you know, he'd come up with uh, begin with the end in mind. I, I, I never forget a, a family meeting we had. I was just a young, young kid and, and he said, okay, kids, I want to teach you a principle. The principle is called begin with the end in mind. This is before seven habits. So before it became habit two. Begin with the end in mind and the whole idea that all things are created twice. There's the, there's a mental creation followed by the physical creation. So begin with the end in mind. And then he went and took the family. There's maybe, you know, we, I came from a family of nine kids. Wow. So at the time there were maybe six of us because, you know, we weren't, the the whole family wasn't there yet. And, um, I remember going to up, uh, the Salt Lake City to, um, a building. And we went to the top of a building. I'll never forget this, because I, I was maybe seven or eight. Went to the top of the building, and we got on top. We went on the roof, and then my dad had his friend there, who was an architect. And the friend went over, went over on the roof to the edge of the, um, edge of the building on the roof, and we looked down next to us, and there was a big hole in the ground. And then my dad said. Here's my friend, the architect. Guess what? He is building a building right there where that hole is. And look, the building is exists in these blueprints. And then the architect pulled out the blueprints that shows all the designs of the building. He goes, that building has already been built mentally. And it shows up on these blueprints. It's there in writing. We're going to come back here in... 18 months, and we're going to see this building that will be physically there. But it's already there in this man's, you know, mind and on the paper. That's beginning with the end in mind. And sure enough, year and a half later, we went back to that same site, and the building was up. And, and um, you know, and I, and I saw the physical creation that followed the mental creation. And, you know, again, just a young kid, but that's st- stuck in my mind ever since. Begin with the end in mind, and I saw it firsthand. So it's things like that that I grew up with—pretty amazing principles being taught. So he tried it first with us, and if it worked, then he he take it out. And so we were the guinea pigs right up front.
0: Yeah, but you, yeah, no, I appreciate Stephen. That was first of all, that was a great story and a great way to really highlight a lesson there. Being around him, he seems like he was one of those rare characters that just come out like every hundred years you see a person like that, that's just really brilliant and him testing these things on you. um, You, you probably have countless examples of that just in a 24 hour period. If you really reflected on it, because as long as you're with him, he's always going to be doing this stuff because that's just how his mind works. Is is there, is there other um, maybe two or three other stories that you, you can highlight just some things that you remember that, uh, that really can capture the essence of of your dad's character,
1: yeah, um like you say, so many different ones. Um, my dad always treated everyone with uh, great respect, everyone. and it didn't matter who you are he he would treat um, the janitor with the same respect. he would treat the president of the company and and uh, he would take an interest in the person and and, um, he treated everyone the same and it was amazing to see he, And, and, um, but one of his greatest strengths was he was such a good listener. And, um, you know, that's one of the habits habit five seek first to understand then to be understood. And no one was better at this than my dad. And I remember as a, as a kid, one time I was a, I think I was a bratty teenager at the time and, and I'd done something to kind of, uh kind of, uh, provoked my dad where I'd, I'd misbehaved and I was sassy and, and, uh, and so he kind of snapped at me a little bit and then, and, uh, um, you know, which I deserved and, you know, but I, but I, you know, I kind of ran off, you know, again, I, I was a, I think I was a bratty 13 year old, you know, ran off and, and, uh, and my dad, even though he had every right to kind of snap at me, he, he, uh, he always wanted to treat everyone just right, and so I just knew my dad was going to come and apologize for for being short tempered, and um and, and uh, and and I said to myself again as a as a sassy thirteen year old, I know my dad's going to come apologize, but I'm not going to forgive him. I'm not going to forgive him because, uh, um, you know, yeah, he, you know, why did he snap at me? So sure enough my dad came to my room and, and uh, it was a couple hours later and he came in to apologize, but he didn't just come in and apologize because he knew that I wasn't ready. He just came in and said, Hey son, um, can we, can we talk? And I said, I don't want to talk, you know? And and uh, he said, okay, that's okay. We don't have to talk. But then he just stayed there. And uh, you know, we just sat there for a while and a while. And after a while, I, um, I started to maybe, talk, say something. And, and he just, and he just listened and he just talked and listened and talked. And, 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 it, and it was just, it was a great listener and he would listen and listen and listen. And again, I was not planning to open up. In fact, I was going to not open up, but he was there for several hours. Jeez. And, and, and rather than being awkward, it actually kind of, the silence was nice, but then over time I began to talk and open up and, and then, uh, towards the end, after listening to me and talking, he said, son, I apologize for, for being short-tempered there. I was wrong. I apologize for that. And I said, dad, I forgive you. <laughs> and I found <laughs> I was not going to forgive him, but, but he earned the right. He, he, he paid a price. It wasn't not a technique. It was not kind of an efficient way of, I'll go to the room and apologize. He knew I was in no condition to accept his apology. So he just stayed with me and was there. Even though I didn't want him there at first, over time though I did. We began to talk, and he, you know it was many, many hours. I'm sure he did not have that time.
0: What was he doing? Just sitting there.
1: Just sitting there, and and uh, and you know, and I was I was I was lying down on the bed, and so, and he was just there on the floor, and it was awkward at first, but <laughs> but uh, over time though it was interesting how how I just began to to, to start start to talk. And and I can't remember if he, he might've, he might've prodded me with a question or two. And I, and I know up front, I initially I was just curt, but then I started to soften. But, <laughs> but my whole point is he spent hours where I'm sure he didn't have those hours to spend. He was a very busy, important person, but I was the most important person to him. And, and, uh, it, it became manifest and, and, uh, You know, so he really modeled what he taught. Um, That's probably the best and most accurate tribute I can give my dad would be to put it this way. That as good as my dad was in public, as a speaker, as an author, and he was very, very good. As good as he was in public, he was even better in private. As a husband to our mother, as a father to us kids, he was who you thought he was. He had real integrity. That was the source of his power was he He not only believed what he taught, he lived what he taught, at least to the best of his ability. He always, you know, tried his best. And, you know, sometimes we, we've seen these um, big names, they can get up on a stage and just wow an audience, dazzle them with a great presentation. And then they walk off stage and they're like a different person in how they treat others. Well, my, my father, he was good on, on stage. He was good on stage. Very good. And he was even better off stage, and he treated everyone with deep respect. And so that's maybe the kindest and most accurate tribute I could pay my dad is simply to say, as good as he was in public, he was even better in private. And I know I I saw he
0: he was he wasn't uh, an actor. He was he was the real deal. And if, the real if, deal. If, the quote. Uh, so Jim Cathcart was on here. He's a Hall of Fame speaker. He was the head of the yes. National Press Association. Great guy. I asked him a a question about this and, and what is the difference, but what is it, what makes a great speaker? And I can't give his exact words. I can't remember, but you can guys can check it out on the podcast. If you haven't checked it out Um, to to paraphrase though, a great speaker is, is a, a person who is great in real life. Like there's, there's, there's a difference he was trying to make the point that there's a difference between that and acting, because if you're not a great person in real life, You can't you can't be a great speaker, per se, because that that makes you an actor. (laughs) So a true great speaker is a person who really lives that life. So your dad was a true great speaker, like the real deal.
1: He's a true great speaker because he was a true great person Mm. and he had congruence. He was authentic. He was aligned. Um, He wasn't one person on stage, another person off stage. He was the same person, a great person in both places. And in fact, um, in this book, Trust and Inspire, I talk about how we all, in a sense, have three lives. You know, our, our public life, what everyone sees; our private life, what just those close around us see; and then our inner life is kind of uh, kind of what we really think and who we are. And real authenticity, which is the source of power as a leader, to be real, to be authentic. Is when there's an alignment between our public, our private, and our inner life, so that we're the same person in all these respects, and and we're not trying to be something for someone else different than we are for others. And um, you know, I think that's that's authenticity, and that's there's a power to that for a speaker. You know, here's here's a little example of that, and it's one of the stories I share and trust and inspire is, you know, when when Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi. Um, he, at some point, he came to to Great Britain. This was when India was under, um, you know, Great Britain's uh, oversight. And he came to Great Britain and he spoke um, in the public. Uh, um, I, I don't know exactly where it was, but in a public forum, it might have been in the House of Commons or, or, or wherever it might have been. But he spoke in a public setting for two hours without a single note and it was captivating and mesmerizing and afterwards a number of the media came up to Gandhi's assistant and and asked him you know how does he just stand up and and speak for 2 hours without a single note and his assistant said this he said something to this effect that um that that Gandhi is who he says he is that what he thinks is what he says and what he says is what he does and he needs no notes to keep track. And whereas, whereas you and I, sometimes we think one thing, we say another, we do a third and we have to keep, keep notes to keep track of it. But with Gandhi, it was all aligned. You know, his life was one indivisible whole and I, and there's just a great clarity and power that comes from that. And that's again, just back to saying, That was probably, that's probably the biggest tribute I can pay to my father is that he was genuine, authentic, real, the real deal, the same in private as he was in public. And, and, and so, you know, that, that, that's exciting. He wasn't perfect. Just like, you know, like he, in that situation, he, he he grew upset at me and he had a right to be because I provoked him and, (laughs) uh, but he wasn't perfect. In fact, one time he was asked, um, so Dr. Covey, do you live the seven habits? And, and here's what he said. He said about 80% of the time, <laughs> he goes, but I try a hundred percent and I course correct all the time, but I fall short too, but I always get back on track. And so about 80% of the time, but I, but I'm trying a hundred percent. And, oh, you man. know, and that, I think it's a lesson for all of us. None of us are perfect. And so, you know, I, by, by telling this about my dad, I'm not trying to say he was perfect. We all have to be perfect because he wasn't. And it's just that we, that he believed what he taught and he tried his best to live what he taught. And when he didn't, he course corrected and tried to get back on the right path.
0: That's brilliant, Stephen. Appreciate that. By the way, I appreciate you spending time to to share with the audience, the story about your dad, because with, with a guy like your your father, there's, there's no way we can, not interject that because that's part of your life, right? Part of my life. It's part, it's part of my story.
1: Are. Is part is part of what I highlight in Trust and Inspire this new book. I start right off telling my dad's story with me, that green and clean story when I'm seven, because I my dad was a trust and inspire parent. So I love it about my dad and and sometimes um, some of might ask me, are you okay if we talk about your dad? Because you know I, here I, here I'm talking. I've got a new book out. But the roots, the genesis of my thinking, my mindset have been influenced so heavily by my father. I'm I feel like I'm standing on the shoulder of a giant. And and so I love to uh to recognize that, to acknowledge it and to be grateful for it.
0: You, you know, Stephen, I I respect you a lot for, for doing this. I'm just saying this, you know, um, if you don't mind just stepping aside for, for a second. I I the fact that when some when when people are like uh, children of great people. A lot of times they, they have a lot of resentment. They feel like they, uh, they wanted to be their own thing and and, and break away from the nest. And they have resentment of their parents for that. You see this with a lot of celebrity, Hollywood celebrities, superstars. Um, But your dad had such a great, as you said, like alignment of of who he was in real life that he, he uh, obviously you guys connected to the level where you're, Completely, you were bonded. And um, the fact that you acknowledged this, I believe, was a foundation for why you became your own independent greatness. Like, you're, you're, I really think that you, you are on the level to, to surpass your dad. I mean, I I looked at the Noble, the uh, Barnes and Nobles book section. I I made this comment, I, I believe, to your, your secretary your assistant, uh, executive assistant, I said, <laughs> I was in Barnes and Nobles two weeks ago and I saw you had a bigger sh- shelf space than your dad. I'm like, this is crazy. Wow. And uh, so, I mean, you're on a trajectory to, to do a, a lot of more great things. And this all began, in my opinion, is because you were able to understand um, how great your dad was and and appreciate that. And then recognize your own character too. And as you said, find your own voice. You went on your own journey. And I love the fact that you said standing on the shoulder of giants. I mean, that's such a scientific uh, term we we use in science, but it, it it makes a lot of sense. And you you can acknowledge that, so th- thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, thank. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words as well. And and I I acknowledge it because it's real, and I believe it, and I'm grateful for it, and and humbled by it. But it, and it doesn't, in my mind, take away anything from me. It actually builds me because I, I had such a great legacy and, and roots to build, you know, roots I was given. And, and, um and so I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I feel it would be inappropriate to not be aware of this and acknowledge it and, and be, and be humbled by
0: it and grateful for it. Thank you, Stephen. Stephen, you want to jump back into your story yeah. though. So you probably were traveling a lot with, with the guy, with the dad, like Mr. Covey, uh, you know, what was that like? As you already acknowledged, you went, you lived in Ireland for three years in Hawaii for a year and a half in Costa Rica, I believe it's in South America, Central America. Um, what, what was that like as a youth constantly traveling? Did that mess up your stability at all? Like your sense of stability that kids generally need, or did that just enhance it?
1: No. Um, and, and, uh, um, We, we probably, when I would, you know, growing up, we had those first in the first 10 years is when we traveled the most in terms of Ireland and Hawaii. But then for the most part, other than that, um, we were mostly in, in, in the, in the, in the same place. And then it was more when I turned 18 that I began to travel and live other places. So we mostly had some sense of stability, but, um, and, but I will say this, that my, my dad himself traveled a lot and was gone from the family a lot because of the work that he was doing. And, and what my dad did to really kind of uh, make this work for him and for the family, for each of us, is he'd take us kids on trips. <laughs> and, and, um, and he literally, I mean, I remember at the start of the year, he'd say, okay, look, kids, here's all the trips I know about so far this year. I'm going to Orlando for this speech. I'm going to San Francisco for this. I'm going you know, to, to New York for this. And he'd lay them out. And he'd say, who wants to go on what trip? <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we would negotiate as kids. I want to go to Orlando. I want to go to Disney World. Or I want to go to New York because I want to go see Broadway plays or what have you. But he would, uh, he'd multitask in the sense of he'd have a trip where he's going to give a speech. And so he'd say let me take one of my kids and we'll go a couple of days earlier or we'll stay a couple of days after. And we'll have a lot of fun and do things together. And we, I used to look forward to those trips. And I remember going to Orlando one time and I went to his speech. I was maybe 12 years old, you know, and, and I was bored stiff by his speech at the time, <laughs> a 12 year old, but I was so happy when he was done because I knew the next two days we were going to Disney world. And, and, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And, and, and we had a great time, but he did that routinely with with the kids, and it was a way of connecting and overlapping his mission with who was important to him, his his, his children, and and uh, and we had a lot of we had a lot of fun. So, in spite of him being gone a lot, and we did move a little bit the first ten years, um, we had a a real sense of of uh, of of deep roots in our, in our childhood, in a sense of community in a neighborhood. Cause for the most part, after those first little bit, we were kind of in the same area and that was, and that was nice. And not everyone has that, you know, um, I've got several friends, military friends that lived all over all the time. Whereas we had a little bit more stability and, and, uh, and that was exciting to to build some deep roots in neighborhoods and the, and the like. And, 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 uh, but my, my parents, both my mom and my dad, we able to always give a sense of, of stability. The whole idea was they wanted to give their kids roots and wings, you know, roots so that they know who they are, where they came from. And they had that ground you and then wings that they can do anything. They can fly. And, and, you know, so we, we, you learn your talents and, and my parents were really affirming. They believed in us and saw the best in us and helped us come to believe in ourselves. They gave us wings, if you will. And that combination of roots and wings is a powerful thing.
0: That's brilliant, Stephen. Stephen, just to flip that conversation, hearing that that point you just made, um, what was it like? Now, I've had several, uh, I think almost uh, seven or eight Hall of Fame speakers on the show. we got another one coming up next week, I believe. What was it like? Just curious from the other side, like having a, a major uh, figure like your dad, a speaking figure, What was it like growing up when he disappeared? What did did you what was your feelings like if he disappeared for like a week or two and had to go at a speaking gig? Did did that bother you at all growing up? Or did you just get used to like how did you adapt to that scenario?
1: I it's amazing because even though my dad was gone a lot, it didn't feel like it for some reason. And my guess is is because he involved us with his what he was doing. So we felt a part of it, and he and you know he involved us with his ideas, with his content. I mean, again, like I said, he taught us the Seven Habits for ten years before he came out with the Seven Habits, <laughs> and and, uh, and so we kind of grew up with it. And and he would talk about he's going to go out with this client and talk about these principles and ideas. And so we we probably felt like we were part of it, and we identified with it, and. And by having greater involvement, we were a little bit more committed to it. We felt like we were a part of his mission. And, and so I talked to my siblings to this day, and none of us, even though my dad traveled a lot, none of us felt like he was gone all the time, partly because he would take us on trips and we'd look forward to it, Other, partly because he involved us. But also, he would prioritize the most important things, and he would hold those you know, in violet. And and they would be, you know, like growing up, I played football and he would say, I'm gonna be at your games on Friday nights. And so if a speech came in on a Friday night somewhere, he wouldn't go to that. He wouldn't take that speech. So he was there for my games. So he might have been gone at different times, but he was there for the most important things to me and to the other kids. And he'd listen to everyone. What's most important to them and what were their interests? And it might've been drama for one. And he'd make sure he was there at the play. He'd learned. So he planned way in advance and to get people's calendars and schedules. No one planned like my dad, you know, yeah. talking about begin with the end of mind. He would get everyone's calendars, all the kids' calendars or school calendars, and he'd learn Winter plays, winter graduations, winter football games, winter different events. And then he would plan and then he would tell his office, OK, on these dates, I'm going to be home. And I don't care what comes in. I don't care who's asking me. I'm going to be home. And then on these other dates, I'm willing to go out. And and so and then he would live true to that. And and uh, so as a result, somehow um, it didn't feel like he was gone all the time. He, he just felt like he was our dad, and and that we were close. And and uh, another thing I'll say is that all of us, each of us kids, somehow felt like we were the favorite child. <laughs> and you know, you know something's going well with if you all feel like you're the favorite. Mm. And, and uh, because of how my dad would take just such a personal interest in in each child, and and do what they love to do. My my sister Catherine, you know, she loved. Star Wars and everything about Star Wars and the science fiction and this and that. My dad was not a big science fiction fan, you know, and and he loved other movies and things, but never got into science fiction. But you know what? He went to all the Star Wars movies with my sister. Why? Because she loved him. And my dad loved my, my sister, his daughter, and this was important to her. So he got into it for her. And he wouldn't have done it on his own, but he would do it for her. And, you know, so he would make, you know, our interests, his interests, because he cared about us. And we all kind of felt that way. So that's a long answer to a good question, which is simply that even though he was gone a lot, I didn't feel that. I, I felt like he was there for the most important things. And it and, and certainly was there for me to talk at any time. And he would make time, even when he didn't have time, he'd somehow... Find a way to make time. And he never, and you never felt like you were putting him out, you know, that somehow he was missing out on some client thing to be with you. Um, I'll tell you one last little story on this. And and uh so my sister, Cynthia, they'd had one of these trips planned, you know, one of the, okay, I'm going around the country, I'm going to these places. Which trip do you want? She picked a trip to San Francisco. And I think she was maybe uh 12 or 13 at the time. And she wanted to go on the cable cars and the trolley cars and go to the wharf and do all these different things. So she went to my dad's speech and he spoke and then, and then they're going to have that evening and the next day to do things. And then at the end of his speech, a person came up from the audience and it was a, a longtime old friend of my dad's and, and said, Oh, Stephen, it's so good to see you again. And, and, and um, you know, Hey, are you here? And, Tonight, and he said, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, why don't you come with me? Let's go out to dinner, and let's go let's go to dinner uh, and and catch up on old times." And 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 my dad said, well, "You know, well, I got my daughter here with me on this special trip," and the and his friend said, "That's okay. Your daughter can come with us." Well, my sister Cynthia, she didn't want to go to dinner with this guy. She didn't know this guy. She wanted to be with my dad and do the fun things that they had planned. And my, and and Cynthia said, I could just see, oh gosh, here goes my trip. And here goes my whole plan for tonight of all these fun things she wanted to do. And, and my dad said to his friend, you know what? I would love to, and maybe we can can't do this another time, but I've made a commitment to my daughter to have a special private date tonight. And so we're going to do some really fun things, but we'll catch up you and I another time. Tonight I'm with my daughter. That was right in front of my sister that he did this. and." And she just realized then and there, I am the most important person to my dad. More than his friends, more than these business opportunities, he's prioritizing me. He values me. That has stayed with her throughout her entire life. And, and, um, and now, by the way, she's, she, uh, my sister Cynthia, has just uh, co-authored a book with my father. Wow. It just came out. It was my dad's last big idea. And they began working on it about four years before my dad passed away. They worked on it for about four years. Then he passed away. Then it took my sister. She kind of dropped the project, but then she brought it back up and just finished it. And it, and and, And the idea, the book is called Live Life in Crescendo. You know, like in music, crescendo is when it goes up, dimiendo when it goes down. And the premise is that your most important work is always ahead of you. It's a mindset, a crescendo mentality, that your most important contributions are always ahead of you. My dad, who wrote the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, always felt like his best book was still yet to come. It was a mindset, a crescendo mindset, and now this book is out: Live Life in Crescendo. And my sister Cynthia co-authored it with my dad, and um, and you know, and she I think she tells this story of my dad prioritizing her. And and um, you know that that that's part of uh, their relationship and bond that they had that was so meaningful. So, anyway, I'm just trying to give you, Dr. Finance, and our our audience a little glimpse into my father and our family. And we're not perfect. Please, please hear that <laughs> he wasn't perfect, and we're not perfect as a family. We got problems too, like everybody. And uh, but but I uh, I did have amazing parents who really were trust and inspire parents who believed in us, who, who helped us come to believe in
0: ourselves. Thank you, Stephen. And, and just on a side note, your, your sister probably never forgot that that moment ever. She's probably ever. still talking about it, right?
1: To this day, <laughs> to this day. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's where it's more than lip service that, you know, my children are my most important part of my life. It's, and he demonstrated it, and you know there would have been. A, not only was this a friend; it was a business opportunity to do some things. And and uh, but he prioritized her. And uh, and and she know she'll never forget it. It's it, it's 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 mostly how she, how it made her feel. It's like uh, Maya Angelo, She has that great quote that she said. I've learned that people will forget what you said. They'll even forget what you did, but they will never forget how they made you feel, mm. and how this made Cynthia feel was that I am loved and prioritized by my dad above everything, and she'll never forget that. That's what
0: she felt. Thank you, Steve. That's beautiful, Steve, Stephen. I, I love to pivot back to your story now, um, specifically to, to yourself. I, I want to know about Stephen M. R. Covey. So uh, maybe the next five, 10 minutes, we'll, we'll, we'll finish up your story and then we'll get into yeah. the questions that works. Okay. okay. So what was, what was it like um, your, your teenage years? Like how, did, how was that transition into, into college? I believe eventually you wind up getting a Harvard MBA if, if that's right. So if you want to yeah. tell us that, that whole period, you can sum that up maybe the next few minutes.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, uh was active kid played football, ran track and, In high school, had a lot of fun. Ran for student body office, and that taught me a little bit about leadership, and that was that was fun. Um, uh, You know, went to college, and I kind of did a liberal arts undergraduate. What college? Um, I went to uh, uh, BYU. BYU. Okay. And and um, and I did a a liberal arts undergraduate, American studies, with a lot of history and political science and English, and uh, with the idea that I always planned on getting an MBA. And I had a goal to to go to Harvard Business School, and and uh, was fortunate that got got accepted into it, and and ended up getting an MBA from Harvard Business School, and and I'm glad that I did the, the the liberal arts undergraduate because that helped me think, and be critical in my thinking and in my writing, and and it broadened me out more than say had I done just a business undergraduate, knowing that I wanted to get an MBA. And so I'm glad I had both. Although when I went to MBA school at Harvard, I will say, you'll appreciate this with your you know, doctor finance that I went with hardly any financial education and background. And so I had a steep learning curve, um, at, in my MBA program compared to the economics majors and the finance majors and the business majors. And, and, uh, Uh, which was the majority of my class had come from those undergraduates. And I was a English liberal arts guy. (laughs) And and so it was a, it was a steep learning curve that first semester. Uh, Cause I was trying to catch up and, and learn the, learn accounting, learn finance, learn the language of business. And, and uh, you know, but I ultimately caught up, but, but it was, it was, it was quite a, quite a steep learning curve at first, but I went to Harvard business school. Um, I, I had worked before Harvard. I'd worked uh, in real estate development with uh, Trammel Crow Company in Dallas, Texas. And Trammel Crow Company at the time was the largest real estate development company in the world. Wow. And you know, big national developers. It was, it was Trammel Crow, the man. It was an, an individual named Trammel Crow, started in Dallas, and and um, and then he built this big national um, real estate company. And and you know, real estate there's not a lot of truly national players because it's more of a local business that you get to know the markets and the like, but they had a great model that they would, you know, put in partners that would know their markets. That would be partners there at part of the national network, but with local partners and, and, um, and they were in the mid eighties. This is when I was there. They were, uh, um, you know, the biggest real estate developer in the country, commercial real estate. So, Office buildings and and uh, warehouse and you know tech space office warehouse combinations and 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 retail. They also had a residential side that that was there too, and so I did that. I was a leasing agent, and um, you know so we I'd be w- working with the local partner. We'd build these big buildings, and then you know, I'd go out and try to lease them, fill them up with tenants. And this is back in the day where you'd do spec buildings. You didn't even have tenants in advance. And so you'd speculative buildings, you'd build it with the idea that if you build it, they will come, you know, and if you build the buildings, you could fill it up with tenants and, and it worked until the market got overbuilt (laughs) and then (laughs) then you're kind of turned upside down. And, and it ultimately kind of led to effectively the, you know, the, the, the demise kind of a a trauma-crow, it still existed. They still had good partners and the like, they ultimately merged with uh, uh, Richard Ellis, uh, Coldwell Banker. And, and, um, and so, uh, but, but I was there during the heyday when it was really kind of a, quite a ride and, and, uh, and built some beautiful buildings. Look at the Dallas skyline. There's some beautiful buildings that were built there in the eighties that, that we were part of and, and pretty exciting. And so that was a lot of fun. I I went to Harvard business school. I did a, um, a stint in investment banking for a short time with, uh, on wall street, and had an opportunity after to, to go full time into that and you know full bore, as well as to go back to trauma Crow. So those were my two kind of big opportunities: going to real estate development, to go back into real estate development with you know further education, ready to be on this really fast track to partnership, because I'd done well in the in the couple of years prior to business school, or to go into investment banking, which I had done the prior summer, and I was. Good at that, and that was exciting. Deal making. We were we worked on at the time the biggest leverage buyout in history. Wow! <laughs> and it was the the Campo acquisition of Federated Department Stores, 1988. Big deal, and and um and and so that was exciting. You know, deal making and Wall Street, all the excitement. So these two kind of exciting things. But but then my dad, um, said, "Why don't you join me?" and our company, and this was before the Seven Habits book was coming out. It had not come out yet, but I knew the Seven Habits well, because we learned it in our home. (laughs) And I knew that I thought this book is going to go somewhere. He said, why don't you come with me and help us build our business, help us build this company and impact people all over. So I kind of was debating, what do I do? Do I take the exciting job of Wall Street, more money, more excitement? And you know, that sounds prestigious. And you tell people I'm working on Wall Street. Do I go back to real estate development on a fast track to partnership? Because I'd done well before and and now I've got this education and, and you know, I could get a I'm close to partnership. Or do I go with this fledgling small <laughs> company that no one knows about, you know, with your own dad and and uh, you know and 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 endure people saying, no, oh, you know, yeah, you're working for your dad, huh? Couldn't find a real job type of thing, you know, which a lot of people did. When, when I, in fact, I had other opportunities and it was, a, it was kind of a debate for me, but, but uh, I kind of narrowed it down between going back to real estate or working with my dad. And I remember my dad one time saying, well, you, you, whatever you want to do is great. And, uh, but then he asked this question. So do you want to build buildings or build people? And I said, you know what? I think I want to build people <laughs> and, and and nothing wrong with building buildings. That's a terrific thing too. Um, it just that wasn't my priority, my, my, my sense of purpose. I, I, I felt maybe it was just in my DNA. I just felt this, this desire to really get into the space of building people and developing people. And, you know, even this new book is unleashing the greatness inside of people. This idea, it was always in me probably because of my upbringing, um, you know, being raised by my dad, as well as, uh, Um, you know, in my DNA maybe, but that's the path I chose. And, and, um, and, and then I, I really carved out. And this was somewhat by design that, because I I was a little bit intimidated of how do you, you know, my dad is this big name and everything. And even though he wasn't the household name until the book came out, he still was doing a lot of speaking and consulting. And I knew he was about to become a household name with the book, the seven habits and and so that was a little intimidating to be his son carrying his name. <clears throat> and so I felt like with my Harvard MBA and the work I'd done at Trauma Crow prior that I really was good at the business side. So I felt like I'll I'll focus on the business side of turning his ideas into a business. And, and that's what I did for the next 15 years. And and it was only, <clears throat> only after doing that that I shifted horses. And I, when I finally felt like, you know what? now i feel like i have something to say hmm. and it was around trust and 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 I, before i was a little bit timid to do that because i felt like how do you follow stephen covey <laughs> how do you go <laughs> down a thought leadership path and 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 um i was grateful for everything my dad has done as i've said but i also you know wanted to have some sense of my own actual contribution so i worked on the business side for 15 years helped build the business you know took it global Um, build a business model that was sustainable and exciting. And because we had, we knew we'd created a lot of value for clients, but we had not figured out how to make money ourselves. I helped, helped us do that, helped us become sustainable. And our mantra became no margin, no mission. And, and you appreciate this, Dr. Finance, (laughs) because if you don't, you know, we had a great mission, but we were trying to do all this great work in the world, but we weren't making any money and we were running out of cash. And so we had to kind of learn how to be a business, not just an ordinary business, a mission driven business, a business with a purpose. But if we were not a business, we would not survive. And so the whole premise is, Hey, if there's no margin, there's no mission. So we've got to operate as a business, but not an ordinary business, an extraordinary business. That was the idea. And so we built this idea of the Cubby Leadership Center, a a purpose driven business. And, and, um, and I went down that path and I, I helped build it. I was the CEO and, and, um, and then it was after kind of, we did a merger with Franklin quest and it was about five years after the merger where I finally said,
0: what year was that, Stephen? The, the, the merger
1: was in 1997, I believe. Wow. And then in about 2002, <laughs> I said, you know what? I think I want to talk about trust because I have seen how trust is everything. It's mm-hmm. everything in this merger. We struggled at first with the merger because we had been arch competitors, Franklin and Covey. Mm-hmm. And we came together. There was kind of lower trust, not because we'd done bad things to each other, but because we were competitors. And, and, and then that slowed everything down. But then we consciously built the trust with each other. And that sp- sped everything up and became more creative and collaborative. And I emerged from that. And I said, trust matters. Mm-hmm. And we're underestimating it by a matter of maybe 100 Wow. It matters that significantly. It's economic, not just social. It affects the speed at which you can move and the cost of everything. There's economics of trust in either direction. There's economics of distrust and of and of trust. And, and to get them working for you is a huge advantage. So trust matters and it is
0: learnable. So Stephen, I just want to pause there for a second. It's Please. This is really good stuff. So you actually, it sounds like the foundation to your life's, mission currently of, of of teaching people about trust really started from that experience you had putting these two companies together franklin and yep. kobe and you watched how important the injection of trust or the uh, the uh t- taking it out the stripping away of trust from a company from from a relationship can actually dissolve a uh, business so you you watched it from both angles and that's when you you got this this idea like, this is so much more important than I ever thought it was. And you Absolutely. wanted to go that way. Is that right?
1: You're exactly right. That's exactly it. I, I earned this insight mm. and this sense of calling through my experience, through the crucible I went through. Because when we merged, again, I'd been the CEO of one of the companies. Now we're merging with the other company competitors. We come together. There was distrust. And half the people didn't trust me. <laughs> So, and, and the thing is at Covid Leadership Center, we'd build a high trust team and culture. And by the way, Franklin Quest had done the same. They had a high trust team and culture too. Good people, good values. We were good people, good values. We came together, we didn't trust each other because we'd just been competitors, right? <laughs> arts competitors, you know, and, and and um and we had different approaches to it. And, and so I saw firsthand, I experienced firsthand the high cost of low trust and how. In spite of our great ideas for the merger, without the trust, it didn't work. Without the trust, everything slowed down. Everything cost more. We had to put in place all these processes and systems because we didn't trust each other. And and um, we were not collaborative, if you don't trust each other, not innovative, if you don't trust each other, slowed down. And that was not acceptable because we were undermining real potential. Mm. Our differences could become our greatest strengths if we could trust each other. And so we became aware, you know, this was about a year process of kind of learning that, Hey, this merger is not going to work if we don't build trust in the culture, Mm. because our differences will only be strengths if we trust each other and differences without trust can be suspicious or even divisive. And that's where the path we were going down until we kind of, came to and became self-aware that we need to actually work on building trust with each other in this merger. And that's when I became very aware of it that, hey, half the people don't trust me and I've got to earn their trust. And I can't just ask for it. I've got to behave my way into it and and demonstrate it and and uh, and give it to, to others. and And so I became aware of this. I began to focus on it. Of how how can we build trust with each other? How can I build trust? I worked at it, worked hard at it, tried, became open, transparent, and and really. I, I remember going to a meeting one time, doctor finance went, where, where we'd been into the merger about a year or so, and and uh, we were having this strategy meeting with all the consultants or most with many of the consultants, you know, who are the, one of the most critical parts of our business, and I was going to be there to talk about strategy. And I had an hour and I remember going to the meeting saying, you know what? People don't really want to talk about strategy. People people want to talk about what's going on in this merger.
0: Yeah.
1: Who's in charge? Who's making which decision, which financial, which compensation system we're going to use the Covey one or the Franklin one, which, you know, sales model are we going to use the Covey one or the Franklin one? It was kind of a, we, they, we, they, we, they, and you know, and I was a Covey, so I was seen as having a bias, right? Because I came from the Covey side, and and I remember going into that meeting, and I came up and I said, "Look, I'm here. I was, I'm, I was, you know, I'm supposed to be talking about strategy. I prepared a presentation on strategy. I'd be happy to talk about it if you'd like, or if you'd rather, I'd like to talk about what you really like to talk about. <laughs> and my guess is from interactions." You'd rather talk about the merger. What's going on? You know, how are you making the decisions? Who's making the decision? What's your criteria for making these decisions? Around all these points, um, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I even brought up tough things to bring up, like, you know, Stephen, you're coming from the Covey side. Are you biased? And and um, you know, and and um, and how do we know you're not? And and all these different things. And so. I teed them all up, including the undiscussables. <laughs> <laughs> Made it safe and and my, my I was open, I was transparent, I was vulnerable. <clears throat> I even brought up. I'm sure some of you are thinking, Stephen, you're your father's son. Do you have any of your own competence on your own, independent of your father? Because I I think that's what some people are thinking, and and so I brought up the tough things. Very vulnerable, but I'll tell you what then i just listened and i and and we and we and we and i and i and i was transparent and and shared everything i could share as much and and didn't try to hold back and unless i had confidentiality issues or something and and um and we listened and we, and we spent not the hours spent the entire day just having an interactive dialogue and we took down all these notes of things we're going to decisions we're going to make how we're going to make that decision. And I, and along the way, I, we had 14, I think commitments i had made that we were going to do that. We decided in the moment with the team, with everyone there, that this seems like a good decision. I, we actually made it kind of together. And, you know, here's these decisions. And I, and I remember coming out of that and saying, okay, here's the commitments we're going to do them. And then we reported back a month later, here's where we are in those 14 commitments and we'd done most of them and Others were in process and and, uh, and began to build trust because making the commitment built hope, keeping the commitment built trust. And we began to behave our way into trust and it changed everything. And again, I'm not presenting myself as a hero because I'm not, I they didn't trust me at first. So, <laughs> you know, I was part of the problem, but I learned through behavior, you can behave your way into trust, just like you can behave your way out of it. And we changed the dynamic and started to build the trust. And when we built the trust, that changed everything. Suddenly, we can move fast, low cost, greater creativity, greater collaboration, innovation, engagement of people. we were focused on our customer better. Every needle went up. And I came out of this whole experience saying, wow, look, this merger made sense strategically, but it was being, un- was being undermined culturally because of distrust. And it was being diminished, discounted, taxed because of distrust. And then we turned it around, and I saw how everything was multiplied and accelerated because of high trust as we built it. And I came out of that saying, trust matters, not just socially, but economically, financially, creatively, in profound ways. We're underestimated by a factor of 100. And it's learnable because look, we built it int- intentionally, we went, we went from low to high. You can build trust on purpose. It's not just, you either have it or you don't. You, you That's your starting point. But you can move the needle on it. You can build it on purpose. And from that crucible, I found my life's work. That this is that we're trust. It matters and you can move it. It's a learnable skill. And that's when I wrote The Speed of Trust coming out of that. And it was a far better book because I'd been on both sides of the ledger. <laughs> I had high trust. I would had low trust. And I'd learned how to rebuild it and rebuild it and and I had more empathy and understanding because of it and and I'd seen the value and the impact in both scenarios and um and that you know when I found my voice and that gave me the, also the confidence to go ahead and try to be a thought leader write a book and don't worry that I'm my father's son and i it may not be the seven habits but but I found my voice and it's around trust so that's um I probably went way too long for you. Uh, no, it's perfect. But that's just uh, um, just trying to give you context of how I found this this uh, this uh, career path that I'm on, which to me is is actually a calling, a sense of stewardship.
0: <clears throat> this is this was perfect, Stephen. Like the, I don't care if it was an extra few minutes. It, it actually it highlighted the moment you hit it, had an epiphany and walk through that journey of finding a life's purpose I, I mean, for a bit, a, a strong business person like yourself, that is, there's a lot of teachable moments there. Um, St- Stephen, j- just to finish up the story though. So now you've been doing this since 2002, I believe when you started writing your book and, and then, uh, can you catch us up to the present? What's your yes. current roles with the organization? How's it doing? Things like that.
1: Yeah. Organizations doing great. Um, stock price has been at at its highest ever even in a bad market you know and and um oh you're public i didn't even know We're, we're yeah franklin is a publicly traded company wow. and um and uh we operate all around the world in 150 countries and our impact is pretty significant and we do leadership development and execution and productivity and sales performance and education and customer loyalty, a lot of different things. My focus is on trust and leadership. And, you know, I've kind of, I, again, I'm not the operator like I used to be. I'm now the thought leader and, but I've just dove deep into trust. I'm, um, you know, a global trust practice leader um, along with uh, uh, Doug Faber, who uh, is the day-to-day guy. I'm more the thought leader guy. And and I'm presenting on trust and 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 leadership all around the world, um, with uh, all kinds of organizations from you know, business to government to healthcare to education, military, not for profit, um, you know NGOs, the whole gamut, and and uh, with executive teams, leadership teams, management teams, helping them build high trust teams, high trust cultures as a way of improving their performance. And, you know, so it's both to build a better culture, but also to get better results. It's really both. And trust is both a culture builder, but it's also an economic driver. It's both, that's the insight. And, and it's also learnable. And so that's what I'm doing is I'm I'm uh, leading the, this work and, and and doing this work all over the world, which is exciting for me. And and uh I can kind of go at my own chosen pace and where I want to go and and um and it's fun, it's a whole new, whole new world. Um, and and uh and so I've written the speed of trust, I wrote a follow-on book, Smart Trust, that's more of a more of a niche book. And now I've got this new book out, Trust and Inspire, which is building upon these ideas, but it's kind of broadening it to a leadership approach, a style of leadership that I'm you know contrasting to the old traditional hierarchical, more command and control style. And I'm saying that, that style doesn't work in this new world, command and control. We need another style that will work. And I, by contrast, it's not command and control, it's trust and inspire. And that's this new book that has come out. And that's what I've been focused on for the last, well, six years in, in actually writing it, but I've been thinking about it for 17 years. Wow. You know, as early as 2005, I started this, this idea planted in my head and, and then it took me, I, I have to noodle with stuff and play around with it. And about six years ago, I began to work on it. And while I'd be going out and giving my presentations on speed of trust and saying, this helps people build a high trust team and culture, but we've got to address how we're leading the style of leadership we're employing and, and, um, and, 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 and we need to be trust and inspire leaders, not command and control leaders. and And not you know, a more a substitute is kind of the more enlightened command and control <laughs> where you bring in things like emotional intelligence and and mission and strengths, good things that you need. But your paradigm of how you view people, how you view leadership hasn't really shifted yet. It's just a more enlightened version of a limited paradigm. and and i wanted I wanted a more expansive paradigm of who people are and what leadership is it, to be relevant in this new world of work. And, and that's the idea of Trust Inspire. So that's been, that's where I'm at. And, and I'm excited um, about this new work. And and I think it's so relevant because I've made it not just about leadership style for, you know, positional leaders, high level leaders, but it's really your style as a parent <laughs> your style as a neighbor as a friend as a community person as you know whatever your role you can be a trust-inspired person that's why in that little caption i wrote for you in the in the inscription that you know you are a trust-inspired person and leader and podcaster and you know and and thought leader but it starts by being a trust-inspired person in in you know seeing the potential the greatness inside of people Helping them come to see it in themselves—that's unleashing their greatness, one on one, as well as in a position of leadership, of, of you know, of positional leadership, of as well. So, but it's for everyone. So I wrote the book not just for CEOs. I wrote the book for everyone, for and for parents, and for friends, and for neighbors, and for team members, as well as team leaders, and and because uh, you can be a trust inspired person. And I trust and inspire leader, because leadership is a choice, not a position. Everyone can be a leader. So that's where I am, and it's that catch catches up with where I'm at with my career it's It's really writing and speaking, teaching, presenting, consulting around building trust and inspire cultures and building trust and inspire leadership as a better way to to lead in this new world.
0: Thank you, Stephen. That was. Great. Now, by the way, I just want to say I commend your mission and I'm, I'm kind of coming full circle with this idea of trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could tell you my story another time, but I learned a lot about marketing over the past couple of years to, to get my brand where it's at. And the funny thing about marketing, and they know this, all the major marketers out there, know, like and trust, right? To go from mm-hmm. no to trust. Trust is the final stage of that process for a reason, And as I'm meeting all these great minds and having my podcast and clubhouse and all this stuff, and a lot of the conversations keep ending on trust. It's just it's just mind blowing. Like once that's gone, everything goes away. Relationships are built on it. So I'd love to dive into that. Uh, I got a series of questions for you. Um, Appreciate that. And um, first, I want to just give you an opportunity. I know you've already mentioned it, but let's spend like just a minute talking about your books. First, I want to give a shout out to Ken Foster for The Connect. Um, I know that you were the forward Love of Ken. one of Ken Foster's books. So.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Courage to Change. Ken's a good friend. He's a fabulous person and a thought leader. And I was honored to write a forward for him. And I'm grateful for our friendship. So I'm glad he introduced us too.
0: Yeah. And he, by the way, he told uh, Ken was on the podcast a few weeks ago. He told the story of how he met you on on the episode. It was a pretty yeah. funny, wild story.
1: <laughs> yeah, we showed up at my house with yeah. a friend.
0: <laughs> it was great. Hey, you want to meet Stephen Covey? Oh, yeah. Come on, let's walk around.
1: <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's like Vince Busio, a mutual friend of ours, introduced us, but in person, just came to my home unannounced. <laughs> but it was great because Vince can drop in my home anytime he wants.
0: <laughs> yeah, and your wife said, let me check first. And, and then you're, and you're like, and then she came back. She's like, "Well, can you come back in 20 minutes?" <laughs> he I just had he to shower. get dressed.
1: I think. <laughs> yeah, <exactly.
0: laughs> that's funny. All right, Stephen. So let, let's let's talk let's talk about your books. Maybe 60 seconds or so, yeah. folks. I just want to start with this uh, trust and inspire book. This is incredible. Um, this is the one that <clears throat> that was. Uh, it's all over the the internet. You can find it everywhere. And look at just look at these. I mean, incredible. Endorsements. I mean, Tony Robbins endorsed you, Adam Grant. I mean, just so many amazing. Every one of these are, are just rock star endorsements. I mean, <laughs> just the amount of connections you have, Steve, it just, it just amazes me. Uh, the influence that you have and the fact that you have such a great mission to match that, to me, that's the most important thing. So, Steven, if you want to tell us about your books and maybe a 60 second summary.
1: Great. So, my first book was The Speed of Trust. And, and that is all about um, kind of why trust matters and how to build it. And it's very much of a hands-on, practical, tangible book on how people build trust through their credibility and through their behavior and kind of walks you through. I think it's foundational. Everyone can use it and everyone has used it. And, and, um, and so it remains, I believe, a foundational work. Then I wrote another book called Smart Trust and that's the defining characteristic that transforms managers into leaders. And and the whole premise is on extending that trust and and uh, in a smart way, you know, in a low trust world. How do you extend trust in a low trust world and and getting good at that. So it's more of a narrower focus. But I think it's an important work. But then I went back broader with the this new book, Trust and Inspire. How Truly Great Leaders Unleash greatness in others. And the premise of this current book, this last one, Trust and Inspire, is, as I've kind of mentioned along the way, is that our world has changed in so many profound, significant ways, you know, technology, disruption, but also in the nature of work, it's more collaborative, interdependent. The workforce has changed. We have as many as five generations at work with completely different expectations. The workplace has changed with them. Um, Work from home, work from everywhere, remote, hybrid work. People have choices and options. And so in this new world of work, we need a new way to lead. The old model, command and control, even the enlightened version of it, not very relevant for this new world of work where people have choices and options because people don't want to be managed. People want to be led. People want to be trusted. They want to be inspired. So we need a new way to lead in a new world. And I'm calling it trust and inspire. I'm trying to name it because we're kind of clear what we need to move from. We're not as clear what we need to move toward. I like Socrates. I just was in Athens, Greece two weeks ago. Oh wow! and, And Socrates said, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. So I'm trying to say, here is the term. To describe the kind of leadership that we need to move toward. Because when you say we need to move away from command and control, most people get it instantly. Yeah, I agree. They're less clear what we need to move toward. I'm trying to name it trust and inspire. You model, you trust, you inspire. And, you know, isn't that what we want? Haven't, you know, think of someone in your life. I ask you, Tony, I ask, I ask our listeners, our viewers. If you had someone in your life who believed in you, who had trust in you, had confidence in you, who gave you a chance, gave you an opportunity, maybe they believe in you more than you believe in yourself. took a chance on you, who trusted you. You know, my, my guess is most of us have had at least one person like that, maybe more than one. And it could be at work, a leader, a mentor, a coach, could be maybe at home, a parent, family member godparent, friend, neighbor, a clergy, someone anywhere in life, an athletic coach, someone who saw your potential, your greatness, and helped you come to see it in yourself and gave you an opportunity. That's a trust-inspired figure in your life, person, leader, friend. And what did that do to you? How did it make you feel? Did you need to be managed? My guess is not. I bet you were inspired brought out your very best and you started to see yourself differently. It probably helped you see yourself differently. So we've each have had such a person or people in our lives. What if we could become that kind of person for others? That's why I come back with, isn't this what we want? Trust and inspire It's a better way to lead. So that's the premise of this book is we got to tap into the greatness, the potential that's inside of people, but the old model won't do it. A new model can and will. And that's what trust and inspire is. It's describing the kind of leadership
0: we need today. Thank you, thank you Stephen. That's brilliant. And by the way, we're going to dissect both those concepts, True. trust and inspire, because uh, they're two interrelated, but yet th- different topics. And, Absolutely. Um, so, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. First hey. first step, uh, thank you, by the way, I want to talk about, I want to step back because we, we started our story of you with the story of your, your dad and, and yeah. his relationship to you and in your life. Um, I, I think like people in books are very similar. The, the, the thoughts up here that we put into our books as an author, I'm speaking, they become like our children, right? Yeah. Like the the, the mental <laughs> the mental thought process that your dad went through, put into his books are very connected to him, the, the soul of, of who Stephen Covey is, right? Your book's similar with you, but I, I want to step back and look at, do the same um, analysis of books, what we did from your story. So for, for just a minute or so, can you just give an overview of your dad, Stephen R. Covey's books and, and the thought process that went behind that?
1: Yeah. Well, his kind of foundational book is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that was kind of looking at, as he st- it came about from studying the wisdom literature in the united states when he was doing his doctorate and he, he noticed that over the first you know this was back in 1976 so it was a 200 year bicentennial study of wisdom literature in the united states and he noticed that the first 150 years the primary focus had been more on character and on the work ethic and perseverance and Grit and integrity and fairness and courage and like kind of character things, but then he began to see a discernible shift in the literature, a little bit more towards what he called the personality ethic, you know, and and um, more techniques versus versus principles and other things. He saw this shift, and and the Seven Habits kind of was born out of that. Seeing that that the original subtitle for the Seven Habits was restoring the character ethic kind of getting this back to the roots. And so those seven habits are foundational habits based upon principles. You know, habit one, begin, uh, habit one, be proactive. And that's re- the principle of responsibility that we are responsible. And, and um for ourselves, for our lives, for our situations, we're all influenced by the environment and by other people's decisions. And that influences us heavily, but ultimately the principle is responsibility and accountability and ownership and stewardship and and um so habit one, you know, it's it's phrases a verb. Be proactive, not reactive. And and you know, and habit two, begin within the mind. Habit three, put first things first. So the whole idea there is you become independent. You go from dependence to ind- independence. And In habits four, five, and six have you go from independence to interdependence, and habit seven is what renews it. renewal and so that's the foundational work because seven habits of highly effective people it's not of highly effective leaders of people of everyone and then he had many many other books um first things first it's kind of ended up being a time management which kind of takes habits two and three and, and applies it to time management that was a great time management book i think it sold more time management books and more books in the time management space than any book out there um then he wrote the habit, which was kind of a, kind of a, a of it was basically putting the seven habits in another dimension by adding this idea of find your voice and inspire others to find theirs. So it was kind of adding another dimension to these seven habits of contribution, of starting with yourself, finding your voice, and then helping others find theirs to contribute to the world. And, and, um, and then the third alternative about helping people, you know, go from an either or mindset into more of a third alternative mindset of coming up with solutions that are better than what you thought or what I thought together we create a third alternative. Um, and those are his seminal jugular, uh, uh works that are out there. Oh, one last one, principle centered leadership. And that's the whole idea that. That there needs to be a foundation to our leadership that's based upon principles, enduring principles that are timeless. Practices can be timely; principles are timeless. You know, principles are universal; they apply everywhere. And and um and so, the idea of centering leadership around principles gives people a root and an anchor, and and that's kind of, in a sense, the the idea of principles in leadership is my father's master brand. That, that that you know, that he's all about leader leadership based upon principles, principle-centered leadership. And there's a book by that name too that kind of encapsulated some of this, some of this thinking. So those are his major works. And each of those is a child. <laughs> yeah. And and uh and each of them, my my dad, it took my dad 10 years to write a book.
0: Wow. Because he'd perfect. have
1: to work, he'd have to think about it. Work, you know, I mean, not the actual 10 years of the physical writing, yeah. but to work through it.
0: That's a characteristic of a great book though.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and then I, and I mentioned this already, but just in case uh, you you didn't hear it, the brand new book published posthumously for my dad, but with my sister, Cynthia Covey Haller, uh, that who and she's amazing. She's brilliant. Live life in crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. And that was my dad's last big idea, his last lecture, if you will. Wow. That, that, uh, <laughs> that this crescendo mentality, this idea that don't ever think that kind of your, your work is done. I mean, look at all you've done, Dr. Finance, with your books, your, your influence, your thought leadership, your thinking.
0: It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime yeah. of accumulation and of yet, experience.
1: <laughs> and yet, my guess is you have a crescendo mentality, believing your greatest contributions are still ahead of you. I That's think right. they are. That's a mindset. It's a mentality. That's the idea. So you know, you never retire from. You might retire from a job, but you never retire from making contributions, from making a difference, from mattering and being of significance. That's the idea. Live life in crescendo. His last book.
0: And, and Stephen, I, I just wanted to add that was brilliant, by the way. I, you just reminded me one of the quotes that I had. It was, it was in the second book. The most important lessons. In economics and finance. I quoted him on a different section for the principles. So this was the most important lessons in economics and finance. 218 principles, right? Out of thousands of principles in yes. economics and finance going back in history. And I, one of the first quotes I gave, I liked. I had to. Go, I used his book as a reference to try to figure out what is a principle. And his his definition here at page 35. It said uh, principles are guidelines for human con- conduct. That are proven to have enduring permanent value. And I loved his definition so much. I I used it as a baseline to create my own. Um, principles will be defined here as natural laws that are indicative to having enduring, enduring, highly probable value. So very, very similar. I just tweaked it a little bit, but the reality is they're basically universal laws. They they can let like they're they're not rules. Right? right. We don't make them up as humans. This is something right. that the universe has created beyond right. what we say. <laughs> so, right. right. the a main good example
1: idea. of that in the physical world is the law of gravity. Right. That's a principle. Yeah. And you can, you know, you can't really, it, it, it governs, it operates, whether you know about it or believe in it. it is going <laughs> to operate regardless. And principles of human effectiveness of, of kindness, of fairness, of integrity, of of uh, of caring, of compassion, of collaboration, these principles of human effectiveness operate. Um, and you know, and they endure and they cross cultures and they cross times and and you know, versus fads that come and go. Mm. That's the
0: idea. That's brilliant. Thank you, Stephen. All right, Stephen, next question, maybe about a minute or so. Uh, yeah. what is the relationship? So I'm tying this together now. So what is the relationship between your recent reasons- recent books, major concepts of trust and inspire, and your father's major concepts of seven habits of highly effective people. Can you, can you find the, if you had a Venn diagram, where's the overlap there that intersect in those two circle of ideas between his works and yours?
1: Yes. In terms of the seven habits of highly effective people, that to me is kind of a foundational work. His first title for it was the seven basic habits. highly effective people because it's just these are foundational things basic things but that was too long so they took out the word basic and and uh but you know that's kind of foundational so for any person to be more effective in their life to be able to be interdependent seven habits is a base and so you almost kind of start on that um i you never go wrong with telling someone read seven habits, (laughs) you know, from the CEO to um, the student, to everyone in between, it's just a foundational book of becoming more effective and moving from dependence to independence, to interdependence. And and that's what life is about interdependence. So that's foundational. So I'm in a sense, building on that base Mm. of of, uh, there's a foundation because if you want to be a trust inspired person, you need to be effective, And if you're, if you're dependent or codependent and not independent and interdependent, then it's hard to really lead others well, because you care too much about people's opinion of you, if you're Mm codependent and, and, or you can't lead if you're dependent completely. So we got to become independent and then we become interdependent. Interdependent is a choice that independent people make. And it's a better, it's a higher value. It's harder too, but so, in a sense, that's kind of foundational. That doesn't mean you have to read the Seven Habits before you read my books, but it's kind of, it's just a foundational thing that I'm kind of operating the premise of, of trust and inspire starts with the premise of who you are matters, and if I, you know, because you you're a model as a leader, so you model who you are, that's your credibility, that's, that's your right. character, that's your competence. And seven habits could be, could be foundational to that. But I will say this, that here's one other book my dad wrote, the eighth habit. I feel like trust and inspire is a continuation of an advancement of, and in some ways, a, um, a fulfilling of my father's work on the eighth habit where that one, cause you know, the subtitle of that one is find your voice and inspire others to find theirs. Mm. I'm now trying to elevate that to a leadership mindset for any person to see themselves as a leader to help in find not only help find another's voice but help them help unleash the greatness that's in the other person. So I feel like I'm the the work I feel like I'm building on is actually the 8th habit. And and um to move this to the idea of how truly great leaders unleash greatness in others, bring it out, help help see it, help communicate it, help develop it, and help unleash the greatness, the inherent potential and talent that's inside of people. And it starts by seeing it first. And, and um, you know, I love uh, the statement by um, um, Emerson. No, no. I think it's by Henry David Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau said, it's not what you look at that matters. It's what you see so when we look at people what do we see do we see the potential the talent, the greatness um, and sometimes we might just see their behavior which is not that and look at your own kids you know and, and and I've learned treat your children according to their potential not not according to their behavior now of course we're aware of their behavior but if we treat them according to their potential they tend to rise up to it if we treat them, according to their behavior, we, they might live down around it. And, and so, you know, that idea of seeing the potential, the greatness that's inside of people. And that's really the kind of leadership. So I feel like the work I'm building on and advancing and expanding, and in some ways completing is my father's book, The Eighth Habit.
0: That's brilliant, Stephen. Stephen, uh, if you don't mind me summarizing, i got to correct i got to correct myself i had the wrong model it's not a venn diagram it's actually like you said a foundational model and i think two things st- stood out i was kind of laughing cuz i it clicked in my head when, when you told the story of when your dad took you on top of the roof and looked at the building that was a, it wasn't built yet but it was a foundation it was a hole, right yep. it's kind of the same thing with the book here like his book he said start with the end in mind so you, he gave you two tips in life before you, before you passed, start with the end in mind. Right. And, and you in, in the one book. And in the other book, uh, find your voice. So with the apes with the ace, uh, habit, he was telling you to find your voice. You got the voice fr- from that idea. And going back to the first book, the seven habits, of highly effective people, you, he gave you the idea of start with the end in mind. You, you started with trust. That's the end. If you got trust, that's the end. Start with the end in mind, and that built off the foundation of his habits, just like you said. So it's actually, uh, <laughs> it's it's so funny how that those two mental concepts um, really were like messages from him, and it became your life's work. And now it's to completely different things. And you're you're standing on the shoulder of giants, as you said, building off his work and taking it to the next level. Because if you can take all those habits and gain trust, then like you've you've done your job, and you can change so many lives. So it's that's beautiful, beautiful synergy there.
1: Well that's beautiful how you expressed it. You, <laughs> that, seriously, that's why they call you Dr. Finance. You know how to bring this together and and uh, in a way that's really better than I could ever say it. So I love it and and I do think that that's exactly you've described what I am trying to do and have and and hopefully have done. And as as my work which is building off my father's but but actually applying his ideas in finding my work, mm-hmm. beginning with the end in mind, trust, finding my voice around trust, and now going out with it. So I, so I can inspire others to find theirs and, you know, and, and now move it to a leadership approach of how we can lead in this new world to unleash the greatness, the potential, the voices, if you will, of everyone that we're around.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Stephen, how important is trust in business and life? Maybe 30 seconds.
1: Indispensable. And again, we all kind of know it, but we underestimate it. I've said by a factor of 100. I kind of believe that. I don't don't know if it's 100, but it's by a huge factor. that, That Because it impacts everything. Look at it this way. Take away trust from any relationship, from any team, from any organization, from any society, and everything will grind to a halt. You know, you wouldn't go out and drive if you couldn't trust that people would fundamentally obey the laws. Yeah, there's always a few people that might not be, but most people are driving safe and follow the rules. If it was a free for all, anything goes out there, you you wouldn't do it. See, It'd be too dangerous. Are days. you reading
0: my next question? <laughs> That's my next question. You're getting Is ahead that? of me. Yeah. My okay. next Question here. Let's let's go with it. How, how, what would happen? to an advanced society where trust of government is eliminated
1: well everything would slow down <laughs> everything would take longer everything would cost more everything would become politicized and you know you know again this is some of what we're dealing increasingly with today is that we're seeing a trust in broader society going down a trust in institutions trust in government trust in media trust in political parties, trust in all kinds of different institutions is going down. In some cases, maybe it's never been lower than it is today. And that's true, not just in the U.S., but in much of the world, if not most of the world. So there's kind of a crisis of trust and there's a high cost to low trust. And so right now, you know, our politics is struggling and other things are struggling. And, And I'll tell you this, you take it away from an organization and and um, it's hard to collaborate, hard to innovate, hard to keep your people. There's low trust. And hard to inspire them. Hard to engage them. And you know, so I like how Warren Buffett put it. He said, "Trust is like air. <laughs> and when it's present, sometimes you don't think about it. But when it's absent, everybody notices. And right now, we're seeing. Gosh, where's where's the, where's the air? <laughs> I got I want some air and we need this this oxygen we need the air we need the trust it takes trust to live in a republic and and uh and so we need it for a society um it it makes a difference I'll give one little quote on this I know we we want to go fast and my my tendency is to give long answers I I promise you I'll give shorter ones as we go through but one last little quote is Francis Fukuyama the Stanford fellow he said this he said a nations well-being as well as its ability to compete is conditioned by a single pervasive cultural characteristic, the level of trust inherent in the society. So our well-being and our ability to compete, our culture, our competitiveness is impacted by the level of trust. As for a country, I also think it's true for an organization. I think it's true for a team. I think it's even true for a person. Trust impacts both our well-being, that's our culture, and our ability to compete, our competitiveness, our performance. Both are impacted by trust. And when the trust is high, it goes up. It multiplies it. When the trust is down, it diminishes it, dilutes it, taxes it.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you, Stephen. appreciate it. That is a brilliant response. If you don't mind, I I like to just flip this conversation, just hypothetically speaking, Okay. So what would the world look like if everyone was operating at 100% trust capacity of everyone else? So, for example, the world trusts everyone. So maybe if you can highlight, talk about that just for maybe 30 seconds to a minute. 100% think, trust everyone, the whole world. Imagine, just imagine that scenario.
1: I think we'd be solving most of our problems.
0: <laughs> I think
1: we, because we'd be, more, <laughs> we'd be far more collaborative far more innovative, because we wouldn't be suspicious about each other's viewpoints and differences. Our differences would become the source of our strengths and our creativity and our innovation. You know, Gandhi put it this way, that that the difference between what we are doing and what we are capable of doing would solve most of the world's problems. I think we would move more towards what we are capable of doing our performance would be far closer to our potential than what it is now. Right now, there's a huge gap between our performance and our potential. And there's many reasons for it. But at a core reason is that there's distrust that diminishes, dilutes, taxes all our other strengths. So I think we'd be in a different and kind place. Because if there were trust, it's both because we're trusting, but also because we're trustworthy because you can't have trust without trustworthiness. So that means people would be deserving and earning trust, and they'd be giving trust. We need both to have
0: trust. No, Stephen, that's a brilliant answer, and I agree with you 100%. But here's the problem, which leads to the next question. Hopefully, you can help with this. Can this hypothetical model, this hypothetical possibility, can that become real? Is, is that is that something that's even even possible? I mean, because think about like, We're in, especially here in the United States. We're in a competitive environment. The whole nature of what we do is competitive: companies versus companies, people versus people. It's it's like it's a completely different mindset. So how do how do we go from something like that to to that hundred percent model where eight billion people are trusting each other? So is is that even possible in human nature or or the nature of life? Yeah,
1: great question. And there may always be some of somewhat of a gap because we're human. <laughs> just like my dad said, I, you live the seven habits 80% of the time. <laughs> so achieving a true 100% as human beings might be hard to get a true 100, but I think we could do a whole lot better than we're doing. And 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 so, and whether it's 100% or, or some much, much higher percentage, that I think we can do it in smaller units. So maybe we can't do it for the world right now, for the US, but maybe each of us could do it for ourselves where we could be trusted and because we're trustworthy and we're trusting and people can learn to trust us. And maybe we could do it one-on-one in a relationship with a spouse or with a friend or with a neighbor or a child or you know, someone you care about. You could build a high-trust relationship where it's near 100% in that relationship. Maybe you could do it in a family. Maybe you could do it on your team at work. Maybe in the company, there's distrust, but maybe you build a high-trust team in a low-trust company. So I think you can do it in your circle of influence um, from the inside out. Maybe not a perfect 100% because we're human, but a much, much higher percent than where we are now, closer to the 100, um, but in our realm. And then you ripple out from there. I use the ripple effect metaphor. It's got to start. The drop of water comes down. The ripple of the waves. So they start with ourselves. Self-trust precedes every other kind of trust. Then it moves out to the relationship trust, one-on-one. Then the team trust. Then the organizational trust. Then the market trust. Then the societal trust. It's hard to just say, let's build trust in society. It's easier to say, I'm going to try to build trust in my relationships, in me, and on my team, and in my family. That, I think each of us can work on it and makes considerable progress.
0: Yeah, Stephen, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, we're probably not going to reach 100%, but the fact is, even if we increase trust of the whole world by, let's say, 10%, right? I think every every inch of of um, every uh, percent or fractional percent of increase of trust has an exponential wave, going back to your pond theory, right? Like has an exponential wave of ripples. So every, every percent. So ten percent could could be like way off the charts of increase in creating productivity and creating a better world to live in, love everything. So uh, I, I, I agree with you, Stephen. Beautiful.
1: I love that the exponential <laughs> impact, you know, the geometric and how this expands. And, uh, and in fact, I'll, I'll say this: here's one of the areas that trust it impacts the, the competitiveness, or, you know, our performance, it's a multiplier, but also our culture, our well-being, our happiness, our joy. So here's a study from two economists, L and Huang. And they studied this. They studied trust and its impact on happiness and satisfaction. And they found exactly to your point in a company, if you could increase the trust by 10% oh, wow. in a company, and by the way, you can measure trust. Trust is a perception. You can measure perceptions. perception. So if you increase trust by 10% within your team or company, that 10% increase in trust will have the equivalent effect as a 36% people, um, uh, 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 excuse me, let me repeat that. The 10% increase in trust will have the equivalent effect on satisfaction of your people as a 36% increase in their pay. Wow. So, think. you know, I mean, think about that. People want to be paid. Right. They want to be paid fairly, but they also want to be trusted. And the trust is actually disproportionate in its effect on their satisfaction. A 10% increase in trust increases a 30 is the equivalent of a 36% three and a half times more. Yeah, in, in satisfaction right. as if you had paid them three, you know, 36% more in pay. So, it just shows you again the ripple effects in multiple arenas.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> I didn't even know that statistic and I, I was just Fascinating. All right, Stephen. Next question: Why do you like this? Why do leaders operate under the paradigm of command and control? Lack of trust for its people. And and I incorporated this question just to preface it because I know you have this new idea of of, um, command and control. You focus a lot on why do leaders operate under the paradigm of command and control? Lack of trust for its people. And this can go back in history. Why do people? Why do they do that?
1: We're good at it. It's what we know. We're scripted in it. It's in our language. I mean, you know, think about it, you know, span of control, you know, hierarchies and, and, um, you know, line of sight, all all, all this uh, language that's kind of command and control type language, subordinates and and the like. And, and so we're deeply scripted in it. We're used to it. We're good at it. We've been trained in it. And, and maybe it's what we know, especially some of the Older generations, me and 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 others, you know, uh, traditionalists and baby boomers, even some of the Gen X are deeply scripted in these models, and and our mentors, our coaches, and our our scripting is deep in it, and um and so, um it's part of who we are. It's part of how we've been successful, <laughs> and it's just that the world is changing in front of our eyes. And so I like to quote Marshall Goldsmith here: "What got you here won't get you there." So maybe command and control worked in the past, but it's not going to work very well today with Gen Z and, and uh, you know, and millennials. <laughs> they don't want to be managed. They want to be led, trusted, inspired. And, and, and so, um, but we're deeply scripted in it. And, and we may know we need to change, but we're not doing it. And to know and not to do is not to know. And also I'll say this, that old paradigms can live on indefinitely. And, and, um, and this is an old paradigm of this is what leadership is. It's position and it's authority and it's, you know, hierarchy and kind of top down and this and that. And that's the old paradigm because it was efficient. It was more accepted. Kind of people just fell in line with it. And, and, um, you know, we get back to the language, the rank and file and, you know, the language of command and control and, and so they grew up with it and no one really challenged it. You know, scientific management, Frederick Winslow-Taylor, it's kind of, this is what it is. And, and um, so, but I liken it to bloodletting, <laughs> and think about bloodletting it was invented by the egyptians some three thousand years ago and then went to the romans and then went to the middle ages and even and george, into the washington george washington
0: died from bloodletting george washington
1: died yeah he had bloodletting like 12 hours before he, he died and, and and it continued on even to the 19th century even though it had been disproven scientifically 250 years earlier Wow. And yet the practice persisted for another two hundred plus years. In a sense, command and control is modern day bloodletting. <laughs> We're good at it. It's in our language. It's in our systems. Most industries are heavily command and control driven, compliance based and that. and And we kind of we kind of have accepted it. But we need a paradigm shift. We need a new way to lead in a new world of work. And command and control doesn't work anymore. As if it ever really completely
0: did. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, Stephen, just to expand on that, I want to read you something from my my first book. It's called Necessity of Finance. Love to hear your thoughts on it because it it ties right into this. All right, it's from page 82 of the Necessity of Finance on economic goal of wealth, wealth maximization. I said here, consider the slave nation's lost opportunity of potential wealth if it allowed its entire people Liberty to maximize their wealth. It's not hard to take this one step further and envision ancient nations already at the state of current civilization, many years of its time. So basically, you know, we've a lot of the nations that had uh, the, the slave mentality, they had slaves and they thought that was a good idea. Um, if they were to have got rid of that thousands of years ago and just give everyone the opportunity. To trust each other and and go out and be their own person independently and make their own living, kind of like we have in the, in the United States, is our base model of, of uh, civilization. Like, do you agree that that maybe two thousand years ago we, we would have been where we are now? Maybe let's go back to the Roman Empire time. And two thousand years ago, do you think we could have been here today a lot so- lot sooner?
1: I think we could have moved a lot faster and been there a lot sooner. In our evol- in evolution and involvement of, of this, if we would have, from the beginning, treated people this way and with an equality and a fairness and equity and opportunity for everyone. Some of the advancements that have come in our thinking and enlightenment, which has been good, I think it would have furthered humankind much sooner, faster. So I agree with the basic premise and you know, and to tap into that. And, and, and we would have far greater wealth, but also far greater opportunity and far greater um, creativity and far greater innovation and far greater fulfillment and far greater capacity and all kinds of things. Every element of life would be further along. And we still are on that process. We're still not perfect, you know. And the whole idea of, of the country, the United States, is to form a more perfect union. And so it's not perfect. We're trying to become better, and we're trying to, to 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 do a better job of all of this, but we're we are a lot further along today than back in in different times. and so yes, and I make the point of, in a sense, I say in the book, trust inspire, trust and inspire while it's really relevant for a new world to work, it always would have made a difference in people's lives and I actually act i I actually Ask that same question. Can you imagine if we would have been led in a trust-inspire way at different times and periods in life and in history, where we might be? Your very point that that this would have brought out potential and greatness and talent, which is what you're saying, of people of everyone, not just of some. Imagine where we might be today. So I I, I like that basic premise. I agree, and and I'm applying it. You Know from wealth to also to greatness to talent to potential, which helps produce wealth and opportunity and everything else.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate that. St- Stephen, I'm going to pivot to your inspiration concept. So, John, John, D- Dr. John D. Martini, who was a main uh, part of this, the secret, he was on here and we had a great discussion on inspiration. His, yeah. his ideas are fascinating, actually. And he, he really, the way he says it, way better than my. Uh, talking about inspiration coming from within and uh, motivation coming from ex- external. Yeah. Basically, once you get inspired, you don't need to do anything else because you already the, the flame's already lit. It's inside you. But I, I wanted to hear your thoughts and what is more important, inspiration or motivation?
1: Yeah, I kind of where John is on this, and and I think that you know, command and control operates on motivation, so it's carrot and stick. And I provide provide more carrots to give people your rewards. There are more sticks, more punishment, and and again, the enlightened version is that people are applying more, more mostly carrots and less sticks. You know, because it's not you know it's not trying to operate out of fear, but instead they're trying to operate out of transactional fairness and exchange. And you know, and I'll give you more carrots if you do this. Well, do do rewards work? Sure, they motivate people to want to get more rewards, but you got to keep feeding. The hungry beast. <laughs> you got to keep feeding it and providing more stimuli, more incentives, more rewards to to get that. And it kind of conditions people. So it is external. It is extrinsic. It's outside of people. And it's a t- basic tenet of command and control. See, what goes right hand in glove with the command and control is carrot and stick. You know that I got to motivate people. Another way to say that is even manipulate people. It may not be an intentionally bad manipulation, so it may not be a malevolent manipulation. It could be a benevolent manipulation of wanting to move them towards doing something you want to have done. And again, I think there's nothing inherently bad or wrong with it. I just don't think it's at the same level Mm -hmm. as inspiration which is intrinsic, it's internal, it's inside of people. To inspire comes from the Latin word inspirare, which means to breathe life into. So you're breathing life into people and relationships, teams, cultures, organizations, versus sucking the life out of it, which command and control often does. And so the fire is already inside of people. It gets lit inside, it ignites. And the key to helping another Light the fire within is to have your own fire lit, you know, to have your own sense of purpose and meaning, your why. You find your why. You get lit up. You become inspired. Like the airline metaphor, you know, put your own mask on first before helping others. Become inspired yourself to help others become inspired, to find their why, and to help light them up. A A lit candle can light other candles. An unlit candle can't do that. So, so uh you light that fire within. And to John's point, I make the same point. That light lit within can burn on for a long time without having to kind of constantly refeeding the hungry beast that you have to on the on the you know carrot and stick, motivation. So inspiration is is a much higher value and approach. And if you want to use the word motivation theory. I would say inspiration is the highest form of motivation theory, you know, because it's, it's, it's internal. It's intrinsic. It's inside of people. We're tapping into that. And it's part of the big contrast between command and control, trust and inspire. And, and, um, command and control is carrot and stick. It's motivation, trust and inspire is inspiration. It's lighting the fire within. It's inside of people. And that's a far greater approach. So I think I'm aligned with John and you and others on, on this idea. This is what people want today. Let me cite this data. Um, Study from Zenger Folkman. They looked at 16 leadership competencies of a leader. Then they asked people, which of these 16 competencies do you most want to see from your leader? The number one competency that they picked was a leader who inspires me. They want to be inspired. And yet they're not getting that. So it's what people want. I I love the Wayne Gretzky metaphor where he says, you know, he's asked, what makes you so good at hockey? He says, I skate to where the puck is going to be. Not to where it's at, but where it's going to be. That makes him good at hockey. I think the puck in leadership is moving towards inspiration. I think inspiration is the new engagement, the next level, the next frontier of engagement. It's where the puck is going. And and um, inspiring others is the new competitive advantage, and I believe this, Tony, everyone can inspire. It's a learnable skill. It's not just for the charismatic. Too often we've equated charisma and inspiration as if they're the same. I separate it. Everyone can inspire. I know some people who are charismatic but who are not inspiring. <laughs> I know other people who no one would describe as charismatic, but who are extraordinarily inspiring because of who they are, how they lead, how they connect, how they care, how they love, how they serve. That inspires. Everyone can inspire. It's a learnable skill.
0: Stephen, we got a bonus round with that one. That was was excellent. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. Absolutely. Stephen, would you call yourself, and I asked this to Dr. John DeMartini after he had me rethink that whole idea motivational speakers, right? Like, would you call yourself an inspirational speaker or motivational speaker? Uh,
1: I, the uh, the an inspirational speaker. I, I actually cringe for me (laughs) on motivational speaker because, because uh, to me, it's too much of a, like in the technique category, personality ethic category, rah, rah, personality ethic, technique, manipulating and that's external extrinsic. No. So I, I, don't, I cringe. Mm-hmm. But if someone says inspiration, I don't mind that because I hope to inspire them. I hope to breathe life into. I hope to ignite the fire within because I'm, I'm operating from the premise. It's already in you. Yeah. You don't have to be manipulated to do this or moved to do this. It's in you. You just need to have the light lit. And yeah. maybe it's already lit. Maybe it gets inflamed more, and, but it's already inside of you. And you start with that premise, it's already in you. And it's part of who you are, just maybe dormant right now. And, and, uh, but you can get lit up and find your why, find your purpose, find your contribution. And, and also you can, you can help others find theirs. And, you know, so I, I make the point that, um, you connect with people. How do you inspire? Connect with people through caring and through a sense of belonging, and then connect to purpose and to meaning and to contribution. Both those connection points inspire. Connecting with people through caring and belonging, that will inspire them. And then connecting people to purpose and to meaning and to contribution, to mattering, to significance, that will inspire. And we can get good at doing both. So I hope inspirational would be where I would air. In fact, I have a little mantra whenever I give a presentation <clears throat> And even for this podcast today, I see this as an interaction with you, and you've know, you you you've got these amazing guests on and do such a fantastic job with your Finance Lives podcast. I'm really humbled, honored to be on here with you, Tony. Thanks. And, and, um, um, but I go in towards any presentation, including this one today, this conversation, this podcast, and here's my mantra. Seek to bless, not to impress. And I I adopt that because I want my mindset to be about, what's my purpose here? Am I trying to impress people? Am I trying to bless people? And if I focus on trying to contribute, to add value, to make a difference, to maybe bring some insight that truly can help another, could bless another, that that will keep my motives right. That it's about contribution, not about trying to look impressive or good. And then it's about me. And I want this to be about the audience, the listeners, the viewers, and hopefully adding value in some way that something you can apply as a parent or as a, as a leader, as a person where I can say, I like this trust and inspire idea. I can apply this. I like the idea of seeing the greatness in people and helping them come to see it in themselves. I can apply that with my own kids or with my direct reports at work. So, you know, seek to bless, not to impress. And I hope that that is on the side of inspiration, not motivation.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. That's brilliant, Stephen. But does does motivation have any value? Just to sum this conversation up, does motivation sure. any value in motivation at all?
1: Sure. And again, at at some level, there's some semantics. That's why I'm saying you could you could call it motivational theory. That includes the hardcore manipulation on one hand of operating out of fear to. The high end of inspiration on that continuum, if you will, of motivational theory that is tapping into inspiration, which is not doing things to you, but doing things with you, and what you can create together when you're inspired together around a higher purpose or cause, um, you know, or and you feel a sense of caring and connectedness and a sense of belonging, being part of something, a sense of identity that comes from that. And it, so, in some ways, so man, it might be semantical, that's why I don't wanna denigrate all motivation. say motivation is bad, inspiration is good. No, I just think that 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 if you view it as a continuum, the highest form oh, okay of motivation is inspiration mm. and and um and again, there's nothing inherently wrong with having rewards within a company. It's just that if you only have rewards and that's what you're only tapping mm. into of caring stick, and you're not tapping into purpose and into meaning into contribution. And if you're not tapping into connecting with people through caring and belonging, you're leaving a lot of value on the table. Mm. It's just, it's back to what we discussed earlier. Our performance will be nowhere near our potential. Mm-hmm. Let's tap into the whole person. See, one of my fundamental beliefs in this book, trust inspire is that people are whole people, body, heart, mind, spirit, So my job as a leader is to inspire, not merely motivate. Now, look, if people were just economic beings, if they were just, you know, financial creatures only, motivation would be sufficient. And with a carrot and stick motivation, you pay them well. But they're more than that. They're not just a body. They're a heart. They want to connect. They want to love and be loved. They want to have caring and a sense of a connection and a sense of identity. They also have a mind. They want... To use their talents and their skills and their expertise, their knowledge, and their, and to contribute that, and they have a spirit, meaning a desire for, for purpose and for meaning, for contribution, to matter and a integratedness. So they're a whole person. Therefore, inspiring them is better than just motivating them. And you might even say inspiring could include some motivational aspects to take care of the body. <laughs> you know, so that's why I'm not absolute on saying motivation bad, inspiration good. I see it as a as a continuum around motivational theory with the highest form being inspiration, tapping into that.
0: That's beautiful response. Thank you, Stephen. Folks. All right. We are entering the next stage. Now we're going into our temple questions. We got Stephen M. R. Covey here, the fourth folks, very important. The fourth, because I'm the fourth. It's important to be the fourth. Four is lucky number. All right. Um, But Stephen, why real, for real, why do we, why do we highlight the fourth? It's important, right? It's important to to let our 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 uh to know about our ancestors. But when we say the fourth, we're actually honoring our ancestors. Would you would you agree with that too?
1: Completely. Absolutely. It <laughs> honors them. It's it's honoring our roots, our heritage, our legacy that we're trying to keep moving forward, but we recognize where we're coming from.
0: Thank you, Stephen. I agree hundred percent. So, Stephen, these these are questions I've asked that mostly everyone on the I believe everyone, maybe the first five uh, interviews, I was finding my way, but every pretty much everyone on the, on the podcast, I've asked these temple questions, um, just generic stuff of very important business stuff um, and authorship stuff. So for example, the first one, can one book change the world? And you would appreciate this as an author. Can one book change the world?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Because ideas change the world and books contain ideas <laughs> and a book like, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People can certainly change someone's world. And if you can change one, you can change another. And, and I, you know, I hope that Trust and Inspire can change at least someone's world. And if you can change one, you can maybe change another. There's many, many fabulous books out there that written by so many people that truly can influence and change. So I do
0: believe a book can change the world. That's probably as close to perfect you can get as an answer. <laughs> I love it, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Stephen, next question. So we're pivoting now into business a little bit. Uh, What role has networking played in your life?
1: I think networking is really important because in a sense, it's the speed of trust in action. Because you have a relationship of trust with someone. And because you trust them, they trust you. And then they have another relationship that maybe they introduce you to somebody. And there's a transference of trust because they trust that person. And that person is saying, you should trust Stephen. That transference of trust enables people to come together faster at less cost. It's the speed of trust and action. And so I think networking can be a, an important thing, especially if it's based upon relationships of trust as opposed to just spheres of acquaintances, you know, which, which you, you know, nothing wrong with that. It's just that there's different levels and layers of networking. And if it's based upon a relationship of trust, it's even a higher, more impactful level. When you know someone well, they know you, you trust each other, and they recommend you to another who they trust. That's a powerful level of networking.
0: Is that what you were talking about in your other book, The Speed of Trust? Were you, were you connecting the dots to this question?
1: That and also the things like referral business for a customer, best kind of business is you know, referral business, repeat mm-hmm. business with the customer because they trust you and then they refer you mm. to another and there's a transference of trust. You get that new customer, faster, less cost, greater speed, lower cost. So, yes, I've applied it to all kinds of different areas of life. You know, working on teams, in an organization, with customers, in the marketplace, a brand, a brand is trust. You have your brand promise. You deliver on your brand promise. That builds brand equity. That's trust. That's trust. So, so you could apply trust at the personal level, the team level, the, rela- the relationship level, the team level, the organizational level, the market level, the societal level.
0: And Stephen, I'm sorry I got all track with these Temple questions, but you just brought up a great point. So if we had speed of trust, right? Like mm-hmm. I, th- th- recently I, I I asked people that were in my circle for endorsements. It's, it's amazing how many people yeah. when they trust you step up to bat. And I, I got a whole army of them in like t- in two days. And just it was from that experience because it took me like a long time to get just like 15 endorsements. Yeah. But then in a weekend, I like tripled that. And yeah. I just thought about that process. What, what is going on here? And then That's I thought the about like in comp- comparing it to what you're saying, What what is what does, uh, the speed of, of trust? How do you apply that to an endorsement, especially if it comes from a person who is highly trustable?
1: you can move fast. You have confidence saying, look, if this person is producing this work, I trust this person. I trust their thinking. I trust their character. I trust their competence. I'm confident I can endorse this book because it's coming from them and they would produce good work. And so, so sometimes you get an endorsement and it can happen in a heartbeat because they know you and they trust, they know know you, they like you. And most importantly, they trust you. They trust your character. They trust your competence you can move fast. Nothing is as fast as the speed of trust. And and endorsements can be exactly an example of that. Whereas with someone you don't know or trust, you're going to really kind of, I got to check it out. I got to read it carefully. Now, I try to read everything I endorse just because at a principle, I want to make sure I'm familiar with it. I agree with it. So I read everything. But there have been some people where they ask for an endorsement and I can say sight unseen, yes, I'll endorse this because I have such trust in you. I still read it, because I want to have integrity around what I'm endorsing, but sometimes their ask is just right out of the gates. So I say yes. Why? Because I trust them.
0: Mm. So if you ha- if you had an endorsement from someone that's highly trustable, uh, the, the the let's say it's a finance uh, podcast as well. So what what's the financial impact from that? I mean, you you can could would you say that you can get so many more. Opportunities to come your way, like an exponential amount of opportunities with the right endorsement from the right person, all because of that speed of trust being transferred over to whoever is behind that opportunity.
1: Absolutely. High trust is a performance multiplier, it'll make you better, it'll multiply everything else you're trying to do. Low trust is a destructive tax, it will diminish, dilute everything you're trying to do. So, high trust is a dividend. A performance multiplier, low-trust is a tax, diminishes, dilutes, everything, and in either direction. And, and the magnitude of it might depend and vary, but here's some data that from watson Wyatt study. High-trust organizations outperform low-trust organizations by 286% in total return to shareholders. That's nearly three times, wow. 3x multiplier. Another study, the 100 best companies to work for, the Great Place to Work Institute. Um, you know, they do this with Fortune and others. In a 13-year study, to be on that particular list, the great place to work list, you have to have high trust. It's two-thirds the criteria, the threshold criteria. 13-year study, those companies outperform the market by 288%, nearly identical, three times higher. So one way to look at it is that high trust is a performance multiplier of about 3x. Wow. And low trust is a destructive tax that would get you at every gate. And you can apply that to most situations, but it could be more in some cases. Like a study from LRN shows that high trust companies innovate six times better than low trust companies. So that's a 6x multiplier. Wow. And then when it comes to retaining millennials, retaining millennials, you have a 22 times greater probability of retaining millennials in a high trust culture than you do in a low trust culture. So the order of magnitude can be extraordinary. But my rule of thumb is to kind of say you got a three-times multiplier with high trust.
0: That is so amazing. I mean, the numbers numbers are mind-blowing. And they are hearing mind-blowing. that from you, <clears throat> thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Sorry about the tangent. I just thought it was a really important digression. Well, there. this
1: is you know world finance. It's, it's the <laughs> economics and the multipliers. And, and that's a big part of my contribution. I'm making a compelling business case for trust. Mm-hmm. Because we know there's a social case. We all feel it and know it. Right. Trust is a social virtue, and it is also an economic driver, affecting the speed at which you can move and the cost of everything. High trust is a dividend, low trust is a tax.
0: Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Brilliant response. Uh, As an extension, that question, is mentoring important? And who are some of your mentors? Maybe in 30 seconds to a minute. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Mentoring is critical. Because that's how we learn. We we get coached, we get mentored. The reason mentoring is so good is because you're usually your mentor is usually someone you trust who is also a model. So, you know, you, you don't want to get you wanna don't want to get mentored from someone that's not very good at what they're doing, not a model of it. That's not as helpful. But when someone's a model at as a leader, they're a model performer, they're a model at whatever their, their strength might be, to have a model also have a relationship with you that becomes a mentor, that's really powerful. So a mentor is a model with a relationship. And that is powerful. And that's how we're going to change the world, is that we we need models of trust and inspire leaders. Like Satya Nadella and how he's revitalized Microsoft, literally revitalized the capabilities, the talents of a huge organization through his leadership style. He's a model who can become a mentor. We need, we need models of trust and inspire leaders. And we need those models to become mentors to help create other trust inspired leaders. So mentoring is vital; is part of that ripple effect that we need to change our world. Wow, that's brilliant!
0: <laughs> Great point. Thank you, Stephen. All right, Stephen. Next question: What what are your favorite financial books? And you know, tying back to finance, I, I consider your dad's book a, a finance book. Uh, it's seven habits of highly effective people. That's a business book. Right. And, and I see business as a part of finance. So like, what are your, I know you're a little biased then, but what are your, uh, your top, maybe five, three to five financial books. If, if you have any yeah. investment, investing books, money books, stuff like
1: yeah, that. Yeah. Well, if you put seven habits in there, there's one, but I remember, I mean, early in my career, I, I, I read think and grow rich. I read, um, the richest men in Babylon, <laughs> Um, and and uh, you know about saving and and the like and and you know creating value um I read some of Robert Allen's stuff and and uh, multiple streams of income, um, lots of different things to kind of think about um, trying to create value and and really opportunity and, and and abundance and wealth. For me, I've always been motivated less by the economic gain only and more by, what with economic gain we can do more of to contribute and to and to invest and in, because I always really believe that life is about contribution more than accumulation and and uh, because then you can make a difference and you can move from success to significance, but there's nothing wrong with with the success. It's a good thing and it's part of the journey you it's hard to move to true significance if we're fighting to to survive right so so we you know we need that so there's, you know a variety of different books um um that that i read over the years that have influenced me and my thinking uh in, in a variety of a variety of ways you know i also read rich dad poor dad i love that and you know just mindsets of of how you think about different things and so i like to be um you know to read broadly in and, and, and including financial books as well i i love it so i love the work that you're doing and, and, um, and, and because it matters and this, these are fundamental needs that enable us also to do other things.
0: Thank you, Stephen. By the way, um, I, I'm going to return the favor. I'm going to send you all three of my books. Uh, so yeah, well, we can coordinate offline if you want, but definitely I'm I got excited. <laughs> I, I can't promise the the, the writing you're, you you have a <laughs> no worries. You said you it better than to. me. <laughs> The, Thank you, Steve. This, this conversation is the writing. So yeah,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Steven. All right. Um Yeah, it reminded me. I'm sorry, just a quick side note. I was thinking Mother's Day, I forgot my my mom a card one time, and she goes, Why do you forget my card? And I, I said, Mom, I'm gonna read it to you right now. She's what? <laughs> and I just I just read her what I felt at the moment. She goes, That don't count. That's <laughs> a good recovery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but but it probably didn't count. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. All right, Stephen. Uh, what are your What are your favorite financial books? Oh, I'm sorry, I said that right. <laughs> do we need money to survive? Do we need money to survive?
1: Absolutely, we, we we do, and we also need money to thrive, and we need money to contribute. And that's why even our company. I told you the story earlier of our business. Initially, at the Covey Leadership Center, in the early days, we were so mission driven. We were going trying to do everything because you know we're about changing the world so we tried to enter every market and every opportunity every channel every market but we didn't have a business plan for it we didn't have a business model for it and but our mission was so grand but we were running out of cash and <laughs> and um and we we had low margins we had all this debt we had no outside capital and you know with high growth with low margin. So do the math on that. You're mm. Dr. Finance. That's not gonna work, is it? We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna run out of cash. Yeah. And cash is like oxygen to the business, and we were running out of oxygen. We and we needed money to survive, and we needed money to have a mission. That's why we adapted the 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 mantra. No margin, no mission. And so we, we said we have to run ourselves like a business and produce a healthy margin. One, we'll be more respected because of it. Two, we'll have greater influence because we're respected because we're business people. And three, we can then fulfill our mission of doing good things in other markets because we have the margin to do it. And without that margin, we won't be able to enter these markets because we won't be around. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to have money to survive. That's true of a business, but it's also you know, true of us as individuals, we have to have money to survive. Now, having said that, I also want to say that I don't think money is the end of our existence. I don't think that that our goal is just to have money. I, I see it more like oxygen. We need it to survive and to move forward so we can do the other things that we want to do to, to make the contributions that we want to make. I think the danger comes when money becomes your your reason for being. Is just about accumulation, instead of viewing it as this is a means to an end of greater contribution. It's an important means, and I don't want to denigrate it, and I don't want to downplay it. Um, but I think that that when we view it as this helps me contribute, this helps me help others, this helps me serve, this helps me make a difference and matter, then I think that perspective matters. Of how we view it. It's a better, healthier relationship with money as a means to an end, but not the end in and of itself only. Um, and again, I'm not against making money and I'm not against having a healthy business. You need that in order to have the contribution. So the mantra no margin, no mission answers your question.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. As an extension of that, is finance necessary for Absolutely.
1: everyone? Absolutely. Same principle. It's it's tied to the idea that we have to there's 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 economics and finance there's there's laws there's principles mm-hmm. as we've talked about there's principles and they can work you you know they're going to operate whether or not we are aware of them like gravity or or not you know or ignore them they're going to operate regardless and and there's principles of good finance and financial management and stewardship that are vital. That we learn to understand and and to get to work in our favor, to optimize them, just like they could work against us if we're not aware of them or violate them, and you can't sustain it. So it's a similar idea that that uh, let's let's work with them as as the fundamental principles that can help us then achieve our broader objectives and goals of greater contribution and creating value.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Three more questions left. As uh, as purpose important for a business well how important is having a purpose in business and what is your purpose
1: i think purpose is is extraordinarily important i think it's a differentiator i think it's what creates helps create inspiration and inspiration also can come through caring and belonging that connection and through trust trusting inspires but having purpose really inspires and and um and I believe this, that you can create and embed purpose, meaning, and contribution into almost any role, into almost any organization. I just was with Pepperdine University, Graziano School of Business. And here's their purpose. They state it this way. They say, our purpose is not to create leaders who are best in the world. Our purpose is to create leaders, to produce leaders who are best for the world. Wow. Changing one word best in the world to best for the world, which implies you got to be good at what you do to be good for the world. But look at the purpose that's embedded in that. Now, if I'm a professor there, you've been a professor there, you know, of, 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 uh, not Pepperdine, but other universities, if I'm a professor there, if I'm a staff member if I'm the janitor and, and I say our purpose, we're producing leaders who are best for the world. Mm. That's going to inspire people. So, Purpose is extraordinary, and that that's how we'll tap into the the motiva- the the inspiration, the highest mm-hmm. level of the motivation, the inspiration that's inside of people. Even Maslow, in his hierarchy of mm-hmm. needs, you know, he initially said self-transcendence was the highest. Mm-hmm. He later came back and wrote a pamphlet entitled Towards the Higher Reaches of Human Nature, in which he said, there's something higher than self-actualization and it's self-transcendence. It's going beyond. It's contribution. It's service. It's creating value. It's purpose. It is so important, especially today. People want purpose. They want meaning. They want to contribute. They want to make a difference. They want to matter.
0: Stephen, what is your purpose in one sentence? You could say, my purpose is. Can you finish that sentence?
1: My purpose is to increase trust and inspiration in our world today, all throughout, everywhere, at every level.
0: That's beautiful. I love it. (laughs) All right, Stephen, two questions left. What would you like to accomplish in the next 10 years or so, and why?
1: I would like to help be part of shifting the paradigm of how we lead towards this trust and inspire approach, and out of command and control, out of bloodletting, And into Trust and Inspire, a more relevant, more complete map of people and of leadership, a better way to lead. So that we tap into all the potential and the talent and the greatness that's out there that we haven't fully for thousands of years, like you asked earlier. And and, and to unleash that greatness, the potential that's inside of people. I would like to be part of that. And I'm not presumptuous to think it's mine. It's not. I'm just one voice of many. That is on this journey. I'm trying to name it and describe it and label it and and say, this is the kind of leadership that's needed today. It's not command and control, it's trust and inspire. And here's what it means you model, you trust, and you inspire. Modeling is who we are, trusting is how we lead, inspiring is connecting to why it matters. That's what you do as a leader. Trust and inspire, not command and control. It's a better way to lead always, but especially in our new world of work. And I want to be part of that that transition that really it's crossing a chasm is because it's not an incremental improvement. I think we've incrementally improved from an authoritarian command and control to an enlightened command and control. So it's a better version of it, but we haven't crossed the chasm. Everything's thus far is different in degree. I think we need to be different in kind, a sea change. I think it's trust and inspire. I want to be a co-catalyst with many others to bring about that kind of leadership shift.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Brilliant, brilliant. Any, by the way, any uh movies? Plan on any, any more movies or any more books to, to to go along with that purpose? Go along with your purpose.
1: Um, oh yes. Um, uh, yes. Um I I uh I I feel like my mission is around trust and now I've added to it inspiration. And and um I've got lots of different ideas and different places to go around the, the basic construct. Um and Someone said to me, "How can you write three books on trust?" It's because we need this. (laughs) Society needs it. We we still are. We still we're in a low trust world, and we need to counteract it. Um, Distrust is contagious. That's the danger of a low trust world. But trust is also contagious. We need to work in the you know to create a virtuous upward spiral. So yes, I plan to continue to contribute, and I don't know exactly my next book because all my focus has been on trust and inspire, but I do have. Uh, I know my field trust and inspiration because my purpose is to increase trust and inspiration in our world and at every level of society and in every person. And that's a tall order. And so I have more that will come there of, of books and, and articles and, and who knows, maybe other media, you know, that could be part of that.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that. And by the way, at some point, uh, in your journey of uh writing about trust i'm sure you're going to intersect with finance so when you when you get to that book let me know i'd be happy to contribute to at some point <laughs> beautiful <laughs> i think Wonderful. it would be a brilliant book thank all you right. thank you Stephen. all right stephen last last question that i have for you is um <clears throat> what would you like to be your legacy to this world
1: if i could achieve my purpose which is i would love to have people said say you know, Stephen helped increase trust in our world. Stephen helped increase inspiration in our world. And if I could even do it with a few, because if you can do it with one, you can do it with many. And so, um, again, I, I don't want to um, try to make this too big in the sense of the only measure of success is that trust is truly you know, We moved that 100% for the world because that was going to be hard. But what if, though, we could have a profound impact on one person, on one team, and on one family, on one neighborhood, on one community, on one company, and then that ripple out from there and impact others, models becoming mentors, rippling out, and get a lot of ripple effects going on in a lot of people. And that way we will kind of impact the world and impact society. So if I can increase trust and inspiration in the world and have people say he was a catalyst to help doing that, he certainly did it for me. If I could have enough people say that, then I would feel like that's a legacy I'd be proud of. Then I'd feel like I was a good steward to my father's legacy Mm. because he's impacted so many and that I added my uniqueness to it, which is trust and inspiration and maybe Standing on his shoulders added to his legacy with my own, of increasing trust and inspiration in our world. That would uh, that would be exciting for me, and I would feel like that my motives were to bless, not to impress. And maybe that we had some progress in doing that.
0: That is brilliant, Stephen. Thank you so much, Stephen. Stephen, I want to conclude and, and, and just say I'm so honored to have you here today. I mean, it's just crazy. One of the first people. Well, I I I don't know if I had Sharon in my books, but uh, one of the first people that I referenced in my books that actually got to do the podcast interview. I went a different direction. I started with uh, financial academics, and but this whole space is like the self help space. Um, so it's it's an honor to have you here. Uh, you know your your mission is incredible. Um, I'd like to think actually that you are like a trust scientist. Like that's the journey you're going on. You're you're trying to find better ways to to look at trust to, to dissect that and 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 that's important. So I'm, I'm i support that mission a whole hundred percent. Um but I like to leave this floor to you. Any anything you'd like to say um or talk about or show your book, you talk about your websites or your social media, the floor is yes. yours, Stephen. Thank you again.
1: Wonderful. Thank thank you, Dr. Finance, Tony. It's great to be with you. I appreciate this opportunity. And um so yes, my my um uh website, go to trustandinspire.com trustandinspire.com, and there's tools, resources, things there, but also you can get the book anywhere, like you were saying, and love you to read the book. I think you'll like it, um, and um, I'm really delighted to do this with you. And love what you're doing and the impact you're having, and I'm glad that you've broadened from finance into the broader space that includes finance, which is vital because you got to have it. It's, you know, no margin, no mission. And if there's no finance, there's no contribution, so we got to have it, and and uh, and there's much more too, and you're tapping into both, so you're not an either-or thinker, you're an and thinker, and I love it. So here's what I would just say: I want to leave this one last thought to our viewers and listeners, and that is: this is a big part of the Trust and Inspire book. I talk about how we got to shift our paradigm, not not a, a shift in degree, but a shift in kind, and have a more complete a more whole, more accurate map. A paradigm means a mental map, a model of the reality. And the map is not the territory. The territory is the reality. The map may or may not be accurate. In the early days of photography, we had inaccurate maps of the territory. It was their best efforts to describe it. But with science, we've become very accurate with our maps. But the question is, what is our map of people? What is our map of leadership? I think we're operating on old maps, old models, old paradigms that are more command and control. So we need a new mental map, a new model, new fundamental beliefs of people and of leadership. That's what I spend a lot of time and Trust and Inspire on. So I'm just going to just briefly give you these fast. Here's, what they, here's a better way of seeing people and leadership that is more complete, more whole, more accurate. I believe that people have greatness inside of them. So my job as a leader is to unleash their potential, not to contain or control them. That's the first belief. The second belief, I believe that people are whole people, body, heart, mind, spirit. So my job as a leader is to inspire, not merely motivate. Third belief, this now, now shifts to, to leadership. I believe there is enough for everyone. So my job as a leader is to elevate caring above competing. Yes, let's compete in the marketplace, but let's care and collaborate in the workplace. Uh, um, uh, scarcity may be good economic theory but it's lousy leadership theory. Abundance is far greater leadership theory and abundance mentality. There's enough for everyone. Fourth belief, I believe that leadership is stewardship. It's about rights. Excuse me. It's about responsibilities, not rights. Influence, not position. So my job as a leader is to put service above self-interest, like Tim's going to talk about. And then finally, I believe that enduring influence is created from the inside out. So my job as a leader is to go first. Someone needs to go first. Leaders go first. They're the first to demonstrate respect when we want more respect. They're the first to be empathic when we need more listening and empathy and understanding. And they're the first to extend trust when we need more trust. Leaders go first. Those five fundamental beliefs put together comprise a more complete, more accurate, more whole paradigm of how to view people, how to view leadership that is more relevant for our times. And that's what the Trust Inspire Leader starts with as their mindset of how they view people, how they view leadership. So I, I, I share that with you to try to tell our listeners, I think you'll resonate with this book. I think it will give you tools and ways to actualize it, to put it into action, put it into practice so we all can become Trust inspired Leaders by first becoming Trust inspired People. So thanks so much. It's an honor to be with you, Doctor Finance, my friend Tony, and I'm really thrilled for this opportunity. And I look forward to continued collaboration. Thank you, my friend.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it, Stephen. Uh, what is your website address? Where is your yes. website?
1: Uh, speedoftrust.com. I have two: speedoftrust.com and trustandinspire.com. It's a brand new one around this new book.
0: Okay. Thank you, Stephen. And, and as far as social media, are you you on all the major social media platforms? All the major Twitter social media, Facebook?
1: yeah. At Stephen Mr. Covey, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Follow me. Um, I'm I'm on, I'm on I'm on everything but TikTok. I'll I'll get there. My <laughs> I got my my uh, young daughter trying to tell me I got to get with the times. So, but but uh, I'm on all, all the other social media at Stephen Mr. Covey.
0: Thank you, Stephen. I have the same issue with the TikTok thing. I'm, <laughs> <on it. laughs> I'm not convinced yet. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate uh, your shares today. This was incredible. This was a classic interview, by the way. This is timeless. So thank you so much, Stephen. Folks, we're going to we're going to uh, close out here. So this is Dr. Anthony created fourth here, also known as Dr. Finance. You've been watching the Dr. Finance live podcast. And this is the website here. If you want to get more info, Dr. Definitely check out uh, Stephen's website and social media as well. Follow, like, and subscribe to this podcast. It'll be broadcasted out to YouTube and 20-plus major podcast directories, amongst so many other things. All right. So also, don't forget, if you're interested, here's my book, "So The Necessity of Finance. If you want to learn about finance, I wrote it for my finance students about 10 years ago, The Importance of Finance, which led to many of my other conclusions of the book I referenced earlier, The Most Important Lessons in Economics and Finance, Stephen's dad was referenced in that book too. Incredible book. Uh, And then my final conclusion, the survival of the richest was uh, about 500 plus page book in 2016, early 2016 was published. So check those out. If you're interested folks and uh, check out Stephen's books as well. Trust and inspire. I could tell you again, this is, this is an incredible book folks. Is it trust and inspire? Um, What a concept that we really need to dive more into. And Stephen's going to be leading that journey. So Thank you again, folks. Follow, like, and subscribe. Very, very important. And we'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye now. Thanks,
1: everyone. Bye.